Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Say a man is made out of mud A poor man's made out of muscle and blood Muscle and blood and skin and bones A mind that's weak and a back that's strong You load 16 tons What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store Hello, BFG. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, Bowman. Not too bad at all. Uh, we're kind of in our own valley of fear right now. <laughs> we are. You're right. And uh, any idea why I'm starting with Tennessee, Ernie Ford, 16 tons? <laughs> well, uh, something about the uh, the woes of the, of the working Joe, I'm guessing? Absolutely, pal. And there's a lot of woes in this story we're going through today. Episode 16, as you said, The Valley of Fear, the fourth and final Sherlock Holmes novel. Exciting times. Yeah, it definitely is. We got this far already. Um, I was wondering, because, you know, there's a chronological placement for this story in the overall Holmes canon. And I'm wondering if it would be, if it would be interesting if we had kind of followed the canon to to the exact T like some hardcore Sherlockians might. And that reminds me, um, you had something about you needed to apologize to Sherlockians, (laughs) if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, just at the outset here, uh, you know, to to any, um, any longtime listeners of the show, you'll know that from time to time, um, me more than you, I think kind of made a few cuts in the direction of the Sherlockians and, and those real fanboys and girls, the fan men and women of, uh, of the Holmes canon. Um, generally, what I, I, I guess what I find a little bit funny, a little bit strange, is the surgical detail to which some of these um, scholars, and they are scholars, will go to prove a point or to promote a theory. Uh, they'll, they'll look for evidence in the color of a coat or the type of tobacco or the placement of a window in a home or whatever. And over the last year or so, I've, um, you know, I've, I've, I've taken some punches at them, I guess, or I've, I've thrown some punches. At them. Yeah, I have been snickering. been snickering, but I've been thinking about it. I've been doing some soul search in BFG and reflecting upon the amount of research and detail that they put into creating this uh, this world of scholarship around Holmes might be a little unfair on my part. Now, there's no single piece of uh, Holmesian theory or scholarship that's coming out of today's episode that I'm going to, you know, really get behind and right. uh, sail my way with. 
But I do think it's necessary that I, I maybe let up a little bit on them because at the end of the day, is it really any different to um, <clears throat> is it really any different to throwing your enthusiasm and your your interest behind any other hobby? You know, like just because I find it kind of gardening. strange, yeah, gardening or cooking or music or, or whatever. Like, is it really any different to to that? And I, I guess from a, a literary point of view, while I find some of these. Um, these connections, these theories, exceptionally far-reaching. In the spirit of fellowship and in the spirit of readership, I guess, it's world-building of a different sort. And it is quite scholarly, uh, even if I find a lot of it unfounded. So while it's not a full, I'm going to accept everything you say um, kind of apology, I do have to recognize that I'm not a Sherlockian. Uh, The context that I've encountered through this wonderfully annotated Klinger edition of the Sherlock Holmes, um, you know, I, I'm putting to good use. Uh, I, I just feel like maybe I'm a little overcritical sometimes of people who really get into this. The idea of fandom itself, perhaps that's what my objection is to. Uh, this not, is your not... William Shatner moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess you're right. Uh, yeah, the confessional. Um, I, I just kind of feel like maybe I've been a little hired on the Sherlockians um, because I am, as you know, a fan, but not a super fan. Uh, we yeah. are lovers, not experts. I don't want to be, nor do I claim to be an expert. If, if if I have any bit of acumen as an expert, it's it's on a literary front where I'm bringing my credentials as, as, as an English teacher, I suppose, as a student, as a lover of books to the study of this. So I, I'm more of an analyst than than a, a Sherlockian. I uh, I have no membership to either club. I'm not terribly interested in that. And I guess that's another reason why it's easy for me to kind of objectively be critical. But listening back to a few episodes and indeed taking comments from some listeners, you know, I just realized maybe I have been a bit critical and unnecessarily so. Perhaps mm-hmm. even it's been a little bit hypocritical. So that is my apology. That is my cleaning the slate. And uh, yeah, I, I hope I hope it's well accepted. <laughs> Well, I accept your apology. Thanks, pal. I appreciate that. Um, once again, if you are just tuning in and you're not uh, inordinately <clears throat> sized up on what it is that uh, the BFG and I are doing, we're working our way through the entire Sherlock Holmes canon according That's to the right. history of publication, not the uh, chronological history of the character himself or indeed Thank you for cases. continuing my segue. Thank oh, you. Uh, sorry, pal. No, 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 no apologies. I'm, I'm glad that you did because... I, I completely forgot that I left uh, on 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 a tangent when I had you talk about your apology. So mm-hmm. thank you oh, for continuing indeed. that trend. Right. Yeah. And uh, what we're doing is coming at this by examining the characters, the story. We've got our own little acronym that we work out. We light the pipes every week. P is for principles, uh, Holmes and Watson themselves. I for investigation. That's the case that's being studied or being told. That includes the narrative scoping of the story and the way it's written. Uh, we've got another P for the perpetrators, those individuals who are at least antagonists to the main principles. Whether they're criminals or not, it's not always that clear. And we and have, boy, there's some in this one. Oh, there sure are. And then we have E for environs or environments, the settings of the story, where uh, Doyle takes us in the tale. And finally, S, the secondary players. And there's a lot of them in this story as well. So we give a mark of five out of each of these components. And then we get a total index score out of 25 that we score each story or novel by. 
And that informs our overall ranking and decisions, which will come in a few months' time. So this is, once again, episode 16. We are looking at The Valley of Fear, which was published in 1914, just at the outset of World War I. Um, yeah, we got an exciting and full-packed episode lined up for you today. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm glad that we cleared the air there, because while uh, it was less of an issue for you, I felt that... Um, I felt that we need to be authentic there with our feelings for a few moments. I agree. Feelings are important. Yes. Uh-huh, Facts uh-huh. are good too, but feelings are also, also relevant. Um, yeah, I, I, I respect with what, what you said all there. And I just wanted to point out that we are, we are also kind of fitting the name of the, of the story. We are in a Valley of fear right now in uh, Ottawa. Um, we thought our winter was done, but it's not. And now there's an ice storm apparently on the way with freezing rain and lots of precipitation, not a cumulative, but freezing rain and ice and whatnot. So we're on a race, I guess, to get this done because, well, Wi-Fi may not be guaranteed. So mm-hmm. we want to uh, make sure this is done as soon as possible. So we're a little bit of an intensity added to, to, to today's proceedings. But uh, I think that makes it more exciting. A little bit. So would you say you're in the Ottawa Valley of Fear? The Ottawa Valley of Fear. Get her done. Uh, that, that is a before and after like you would find on the Wheel of Fortune. I think so, yeah. The Ottawa this Valley is, of Fear. Yes, this isn't Vermissa Valley, but you know what? Uh, it's its own Valley of Fear in its own way, what with its politics and everything. Yeah, I think you got that to be grateful for or thankful for as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, not talking about anything going on right now in in the in down, <laughs> you know south of the border and policies emitting south of the border, <laughs> affecting other parts of the world. No comment on that whatsoever. Uh, None at all. It's an, inter- it's an interesting weekend. Let's just say that. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't we make it a little more interesting then and jump into this. Uh, in terms of publication information, I will share some info here, pal, on the Valley of Fear, Doyle's fourth novel. Uh, Give me that publication final. information. Well, I'm going to do something a little different, okay? Uh, my research into this uh, goes a little further than normal, and so I'm going to read to you um, some info about the story and how this how this all came about anyway. So uh, just bear with me. The story of the Scourers of Vermissa Valley, which is the story, largely the backstory behind the uh, Burlstone murder that is yeah. the centerpiece to this novel, was actually based on the real-life story of the Molly Maguires. Have you heard of them? They sound familiar, yes. Well, the Molly Maguires, my good man, were a um, <clears throat> a clandestine organization which had fought for the rights of Irish miners in the 1870s before being broken up by a man named James McParlin, who was a detective from the newly formed Pinkerton Agency in the United States. All right. So already, already you can see the parallels, yeah. Um, Now, there's some disagreement over how Doyle came by details of this case. His own claim that he learned of it through Pinkerton's son is somewhat suspect. But even if he did hear something that way, Pinkerton's own account of the story written in 1877 called The Molly Maguires and the Detectives is itself believed to have uh, really had an influence on not just Doyle, but a lot of people. That was a pretty popular story about organized crime and um, and kind of how the detective agency kind of got its lift, right? Yes. But uh, he had a pal whose name was William Burns. Uh, and Burns was a former Pinkerton's agent who had set off to start his own agency. And in 1913, Burns had, vo- had visited Doyle uh, 
After the publication of his book, which dealt with a threat to, I don't have the title of it, but basically the book dealt with the threat to American businesses by this violent type of syndicalism that, that we see in the story. Yes. Um, now, <clears throat> cutting a long story short, these extra details about the Molly Maguires and kind of mining at the time and the organized crime behind it all, Doyle was really happy to soak up. We've seen him do similar yeah. things with respect to the Mormons in Utah and uh, with what he produced ultimately with Study in Scarlet. There are some real structural similarities here in yeah, this one. It's almost a full circle kind of return to, to his it original is. form yeah. in many ways. It is, you're right. Um, yeah. Anyway. His bookend. To yeah. To his... To, to the Sherlock Holmes legacy. And then, of course, we got some un unpublished stories afterwards that we'll deal with. But We will. I've got further information on the Mullen Maguires later if you want to talk about them as kind of inspirations for some of the characters. But yeah, the, we can throw those in. Yeah, during the Christmas of 1914, uh, we know from his own letters and records, and diary rather, that Doyle was at least three chapters happy with this Scourer's story. Um, it was another cross-continental revenge mystery. Uh, he loves... We, yeah, that's right. He, he he met with a group of family and close friends on the 17th of January, 1914. And he was hoping to complete the novel by the end of March. This was explained in a letter to Greenhouse Smith, his Strand publisher, in early February. But during this meeting on the 17th of January with family and friends, a small group in uh, in his home, he read three chapters that he had completed and he was really happy with, uh, which is kind of, I guess, the way... Uh, that history, at least Andrew Lysette's biography of him, tells the story of uh, him being pleased with you know how the progress was working on this book. But the book was delayed. Uh, Doyle himself pushed back the deadline on account of being and getting quite embroiled in uh, a, a debate over the Channel Tunnel. Now, this is an interesting mm. story. I know it's going to sound a bit like a minute uh, for... or it's going to sound like... Uh, uh, a deviation for a second, but just just stick with me. Doyle was heritage. that's right, yeah. Doyle Doyle was you know a correspondent and uh, a regular contributor to the newspaper, and so was a guy named Colonel Charles Reppington. Colonel Charles <clears throat> Colonel Charles Reppington was the military correspondent, and he got himself embroiled in this debate with Doyle just over the Channel off, Tunnel. This guy sounds a bit of a dick. Well. Doyle was arguing that, you know, at the onset of war, um, if they don't have a tunnel or some secure way to get uh, merchant goods across the tunnel or the, the channel, then German submarines and shipping or um, war could very well, you know, destroy the merchant class and and all of those provisions going across to the continent. Which was a realistic fear at the time, because this is about World War One is about to break out. Yeah, well, anyway, there was a back and forth melee, editorially speaking, that Doyle was wrapped up in with this guy, Reppington. Um, but he did really feel earnestly that a unified strike against merchant shipping would have sunk the entire war effort in about six weeks. So he felt it necessary and argued for the building of and defense of a tunnel. Ironically, his writings on the subject, uh, several of which were laughed out of Britain, um, thanks to the promoted help of this guy, Reppington, they mm. were later revealed to have influenced the German fleet commander, Admiral Reinhard Scheer. And Scheer spent many, many weeks thinking and planning seriously about waging unrestricted submarine warfare. So it's, it's, it's quite funny to think of how other, um, in this 
in this I guess example, the antagonist, right, is uh, is doing more serious consideration of your own local press and your own national press and strategy than your own allies, you know. Yeah. Anyway, long story short, but 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 by the time the story was finally finished, this valley of fear, war had already broken fully, and among other small changes sensitive to the newly stoked fire surrounding the Irish Home Rule, which we might get into. Oh boy. Doyle changed the origins of Eddie's family, the Shafters, from German to Swedish. They were originally German. Now published, Doyle accepted the open invitation that had been extended to him for a long time by Colonel Maynard Rogers, who had met Doyle in South Africa and had been for a long time inviting him to Canada because uh, Rogers was the new superintendent of Jasper National Park in Alberta. And the Canadian government, you may be aware from your own history and growing up in Canada and your own school studies, um, the Canadian government was really, really keen to attract high-profile visitors to the area and to broadcast its accomplishment of the CPR, which connected Uh the enormity of Canada, supposedly, apart from Newfoundland, by one single line. So, in May... After the publication of The Valley of Fear, the Doyles left on board the SS Olympic, which is another interesting story I picked up from Lysette's biography. Um, This was a deliberate and bold move by Doyle to travel he and his family on board the Titanic's sister ship. (laughs) <laughs> who's, because the Titanic sank just a couple of years earlier and had led, really, ocean travel into a, a, a gloomy loss of public faith, I guess you could say. Well, This is before Lusitania. Uh-huh. George Bernard Shaw, shortly after the Titanic disaster, had sarcastically described the affair as a, quote, triumph of British navigation, end quote, and Doyle had taken himself, or had taken him seriously to task for being both cruel, lacking human sentiment and decency, and in any case... Uh, curious and, uh, I, I get, well, no, it doesn't matter. I won't go there. But Doyle was off to Canada in May. The Valley of Fear had begun just to be serialized in the Strand, uh, in the Strand magazine. And that is the story of that. So there's a lot there to chew on. My apologies if it wasn't all clear. But the story of the Scourers was based on a couple of different real life accounts, including, uh, Pinkerton's, him, his own, his own, and, uh, largely the help of William Burns, one of his pals. And it would have come out a little quicker had he not got himself embroiled in some pre-conflict uh, editorial melee with uh, this <laughs> other dude. And finally, he went off to Canada while it was being published and printed. Oh, well, that's quite a travail going from all the way to Canada. Mm-hmm, indeed. Yeah. And now you know the rest of the story. Yeah, exactly. Now we know the rest of the story. So what have you got to offer? Well... I thought I could uh, take you on in a little uh, outline of the Valley of Fear. Um, it's only do. one story we got to do today, and you know I just want to give a general presentation of the story itself without you know of spo- without kind of overall uh, spoiling the whole enterprise. You know what I mean? For sure. Well, go ahead, spoil away. Well, so. It looks like it's prequel time in the Sherlock Holmes universe. Mm -hmm. But, you know, not Star Wars prequel time, thank God. Or maybe it is. I'll let you judge, dear listeners. But it seems Arthur Conan Doyle realized how lame the adventures of the three students was and decided to get back to the good old (laughs) days of Moriarty. It was lame. Some utterly multifaceted villain that we came to love over so many stories? No, I don't remember that either. While the ghost of Arthur Conan Doyle rubs some aloe vera on that metaphysical burn I've just scalded him with, I'll regale you with the one before the final problem. 
that's a subtle friends reference using the whole the one be, the one thing in the title of of, of the episode I, I made there. I will but say I it's, it's subtle. Fair, subtle, yeah. Well, you know, um, I think it's a fair comment. As in my my not so humble opinion, some of the more recent adventures of our, of our dynamic duo could have easily have been solved by Master Joseph Tribbiani. <laughs> Master, Master Joseph Tribbiani. Of course, that's how he he, he would be re, be referred back to in the day. Do you think so? <laughs> Maybe. How how many TV uh, soap actors were there back then? <laughs> Not a lot. I guess they were doing those stage plays, probably in vaudeville or whatever. Yeah, probably. Yeah, but enough with the third degree critical burns. The Sherlockians aren't really phased by them anyway, as Holmes seems to be critic proof, <laughs> right? But I mean, you talked about that. So. We find Holmes engrossed in deciphering a letter from one Fred Porlock. You see, the master sleuth at the, at the time of this case was on the trail of criminal mastermind Professor Moriarty, and through some social engineering managed to gain the confidence of a man in Moriarty's orbit. Already hailed as a great length for a cuppa by our venerable critics at Goodreads, his dy- <laughs> Moriarty's dynamics of an asteroid has got all of the London scientific scene fangirling like cumberbitches, that only a select few are made to serve him personally. One such bloke is our man Porlock, who has been sending Greek messages to Holmes, but despite his CPU-like mind, our hero is unable to crack the case. So he's pretty annoyed when Watson offers to help him solve it one afternoon at 221B. We get the usual offended party of Watson against the peevish company of Holmes, jabbering back and forth as they endeavor to decipher Porlock's code. Deus ex Sherlockia delivers the providence in the form of another missive from Porlock which Watson is actually written as a helpful, intelligent co-conspirator in crime-fighting to Holmes for a change as they come to the conclusion that Porlock's cipher is hidden in the passages of a previous year Whitaker's almanac. The gist of the message, something bad will happen to Douglas at Burlstone, Q Deus ex number two. Our, as our supporter, Lestrade, wait, Alex McDonald? Okay, sure, Alex McDonald, it is, shows up at the door with a juicy whodunit for our heroes. This character, who has known our heroes for years, has he? An Aberdonian <laughs> no-nonsense Scotsman who is portrayed as the most competent Scotland Yard agent we have ever seen. Yes, Jeez, he really that, is. Yeah, I, I honestly believe that uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, this is my aside, he is not going to put an incompetent Scotsman on the case. No, I think you're probably right. But he sounds like a great character, like uh, just how he described him uh, and, and, and writes him and, and, and just the attitude. Like, you could tell that the writing that that ACD puts into Watson describing him, it's almost like Watson himself is amazed by the character. Um, not as amazing as, you know, some of the ladies that Watson encounters over the years, but a different type of amazement. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So this no-nonsense Scotsman, who's, a, who's portrayed to be the most competent Scotland Yard agent ever, chews the fat with our homeboys until he reads Porlock's recent script, which is exactly the name of the, lo- of the location and of the victim of his latest case. MacDonald is skeptical that Moriarty is behind the hit on Douglas, and is also skeptical that Moriarty, the arch-villain, even exists. Me too, Mr. Mac. Me too. But he gives our heroes the deets. Mr. Douglas, a Yankee expat, worked his way... Mr. John Douglas, I should say. A Yankee expat worked his way up to an estate in Sussex, complete with a drawbridge, a moat, and an English girl, until he takes one in, in the noggin from the shotgun blast. The local detective, a white mason, probably, named White Mason, 
meets Holmes, Watson, and McDonald at the local inn to go over the case. The staff, Mrs. Douglas, and the late American's friend, an Englishman who Douglas got acquainted with back in America, a Mr. Cecil Barker, stand by as Holmes and Watson are brought into Burlstone and into the bloody study wherein Mr. Douglas's face had been decimated. Crime scene details of the doctor's findings are examined. Mr. Douglas is missing his wedding ring. He seems to have a small branded mark on his arm. There's what appears to be some sort of calling card with the initials VV. My inter interpretation was vivacious vixen, and that Douglas had the most different and progressive past history that ACD has ever written. But <laughs> that would be too fun. But you got to think it you could have been an interesting story. Put definitely a view on the on what the word scourer could have meant. Oh, and there's a dumbbell missing. Barker heard the shot as he was sleeping over that evening. The drawbridge was still up, and there was blood on the windowsill, the only exit point being that of a shallow moat surrounding the manor and the murder weapon, a sawed-off shotgun which, truth be told, sort of made me unconsciously realize this was a switcheroo situation and that the Vic and his friends took a page from the book of Fox Mulder. Oh, what private Gethsemane did our friend Douglas endure that fateful evening? You got that reference. One wonder, one wonder, especially with the hints of Barker and Mrs. Douglas, have been dropping about evil men pursuing him across the pond. I'm sure the moldering Holmes did after that little juicy tidbit of information was quite intense. Geeky and biblical. Okay, geeky works. <laughs> Tangents aside, Holmes criticizes, scrutinizes Barker and Mrs. Douglas' point of view, as well Watson does his trademark repressed Victorian era penthouse letter description of Mrs. Douglas. <laughs> Wasn't Mary alive at this point? Needless to say, there are a lot of holes. Plot holes, that is. Holmes is put <laughs> off as to how calm Miss Douglas seems to be by the brutal murder and damn that dumb missing dumbbell. Doesn't anybody realize the dumbbell is missing? I mean, seriously. But serious is not what Douglas and Barker are all about. As Watson, taking a breather in Burlstone Gardens, overhears Barker and Mrs. Douglas's giggle like teenagers behind a hedge. Watson immediately burns his penthouse letter and gives her the glower, at least until she sweet, talk, she sweet talks him down from a I never to a harumph. The case goes on. A bike is found covered by leaves nearby. The bike is then traced to an inn where another American had been staying as a guest, but no one had seen him since. The sawed-off shotgun is also American-made. America and its guns. Jeez, I tell ya. The murdered murderer must have hightailed it out of Sussex and the UK through some other means. But Holmes plays his wait-and-see card, as well as his what-the-fuck card, when he leaves an umbrella in the study. McDonald drops a couple of IQ points as he can no, no reason for Holmes to be for, as he can see no reason for Holmes to be doing these things. But Sherlock lets human nature run its course. That night, observing from afar, rear window style, we see the lights of the study come on, the window open, and, and an umbrella reach down into the moat and pull up the drum. Drum roll. Holmes, McDonald, and Watson et al. race over the drawbridge and into the study to find Barker like a deer caught in the headlights holding us onto a scrap wrapped bundle of clothes that had been weighed down by the missing dumbbell. The slippers worn by Barker were another giveaway for Holmes as they matched the bloody footprint on the windowsill. Yes, elementary indeed. Barker immediately clams up at this intrusion slash gotcha moment, but Holmes will have none of it, but that's moot as a wild late Master John Douglas appears. Master Douglas uses surprise on Sherlock. It fails. Sherlock uses knowing nod to Master Douglas. It's super effective. <laughs> Douglas explains his resurrection to all and sundry. The victim is his would-be murderer, Ted Baldwin, who sneaking into his house attempted to kill him first with a knife and then with a sawed-off shotgun, but a brutal tug of war ended, resulting in a face-off. Now that you picked yourself off the floor, <laughs> it unfolds that the Douglases and Mr. Barker faked his death so that the secret society from Vermissa Valley, 
really sad about being wrong on those initials and stand mm-hmm. by my claim that Vacious Vixen is way, way better. We'll no longer be chasing him around the moons of Nibia and around the Antares Maelstrom and around Perdition's flames before giving him up. An actual quote from the book, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. And Douglas turns out to a man after Watson's own heart, as he already prepared for his new life abroad as a writer with his soon-to-be-published potboiler, The Valley of Fear. Dun-dun-dun. Watson peruses the manuscript where we meet a crazy Irish ne'er-do-well named John McMurdo, who circa the 1870s is taking the train into Westworld looking to escape a capital murder and forgery charge in Chicago. Deadwood, I mean, Vermissa Valley, is his departure point, and he manages to find some lodgings in town. There's a German with a cute daughter named Eddie, sorry, Swedish Swede with a cute daughter named Eddie, mm-hmm. for him to exploit. So this crazy Fenian settles himself in. Being a lodge member back there in Chi-Town, McMurdy, McMurdo insinuates himself with a local lodge slash union leader, Black Jack McGinty, who in a perfect world would have been portrayed by Powers Booth. Rest in peace. And hey, it looks like it's Ted Baldwin, the future man without a face. <laughs> and he has hots for Eddie. Oh, ho, ho. He don't like this McMurdo fella. Crazy Irish bastard. And that's saying something because everyone in this Cali mining town is pretty damn fracking evil. <laughs> Not as evil as that McGinty, though. No. McMurdo no has... No. McMurdo has, McMurdo has to join the Scourers, a league of the League of Shadows that run this town. But before you can say Bluto, he goes through a fracked up frat house hazing. Like Animal House, but with possible dagers <laughs> in the eyes and cattle branding. But evil is in McMurdo's heart, or so it seems... Because he's against killing the Vermissa newspaper editor, who had been slandering McGinty and his men for being pieces of shit. But he stands by as Baldwin and co. give the editor a good roughing up and a swan dive off the newspaper's second floor balcony. He listens to Brother Morris, a member of the Scourers, but not by choice. But McGinty has eyes everywhere. And he and the lodgemen of adjacent townships rule these towns, these lands with an iron fist. So McMurdo, McMurdo has to do battle with his soul away from all the prying eyes. Company officers for the mining corporations are assassinated. Defiant homeowners are knifed in their homes in front of their families. It's pretty damn awful. Turns out, though, McMurdo is actually a Pickerton named Bertie Edwards. Did Arthur Conan Doyle travel to the future and watch John Ford films for these names? Uh, It's it's pretty amazing. It is, yeah. Slate aside. Arthur okay. Conan Doyle would have loved the the age of film noir and uh, and 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 Hollywood westerns. Honestly, I think he would have been. Uh, to me, this this seems like he was born for these types of, of, of stories, because um, it seems what he's mostly interested in. Mm, he That's my he, he wouldn't have missed too much of it, though. Not too much. No, yeah, he, he, uh, he, he I think he, he I think he missed the, the the golden age of it, though, for sure. Oh, he did, but he was nearly there before he died. Nearly, nearly. He maybe he maybe saw some Roy Rogers. Maybe who knows? Who knows? Um, who has been, but anyways, uh, McMurdo uh, has been playing Donnie Brasco on these scum and warning intended victims whenever he can, as well as listen to the do- the likes of Morris, and has been secretly been scouring the scourers from the inside. He manages to get the whole gang, McGinty included in participating in the attempted murder of some stubborn, courageous schmo named Bertie Edwards. Hey, that's his name. But it, this leads to a surprise sting by the local cops who, with the cooperation of the local justice, take great relish at sending these pieces of shit to the gallows. McMurdo, no longer McMurdo, leaves with Eddie, but the typhoid snat- snatches her away, alas, leaving him to meet a young Cecil Barker and to make his fortune. McGinty and most of his cronies get the rope, but Baldwin, as we know, flew the coop and inevitably received his facial at the shotgun spa. Since there's no real murderer and no one gives F to all Ted Baldwin's immortal soul, the Douglases decide to disappear in the Africa, which is a valid place to go if you want to disappear, 
but Moriarty gets the last laugh, being that the Scour Remnant paid him hard cash to track down Bertie Edwards in the first place. Moriarty ties up his loose ends, and Edwards never makes it off that slow boat to Africa. Thus, Arthur Conan Doyle finally gives his infamous arch-villain some actual infamy, which is the whole point of this story, in my not-so-humble opinion. I still think mm. Vivacious Vixen is better. <laughs> Uh, I, li- I like your um, <clears throat> I like your take on the shotgun spa. <laughs> oh, very well. And think about I, it, in Sussex, the beautiful manor with the drawbridge. You know, like mm. probably very uh, inspirational music playing. You know, waves, maybe whale sound or something. You come into, you know, you just hide in the corner. You wait for your your victim to come in the room, and then you know, and then he just wonder- and he just like obligingly puts the shotgun right in your face. Uh, sounds so lovely. The way you sell it, you know. Advertising's all, my friend. I'm not so sure, though, that we're going to agree on the whole uh, Moriarty part. This is going to be an excellent chat because, you know, something we should have maybe said at the outset, if uh, you are just joining in now, although I can't imagine for the world of me why you haven't uh, listened to the previous 15 incredible episodes. Um, If you are just joining us, Josh and I do not confer over scoring before we start these chats. We have seen eye to eye on several stories, but several we've been, or few we've been a little bit different on. Uh, Anyway, this is going to be an interesting one. I had, I'll just say from the start, I had a lot of trouble with this story in terms of scoring it. It took me not just um, time here in Scotland, but I, I, even though I had finished the story, I took with me my notes when I flew to Munich there last week, and on the plane I was thinking about it. I thought maybe some Alpine air would help clear things up for me. <laughs> Couldn't quite get it. Got back home. Yeah, man, it's uh, this was a really tough one for me to score. In fact, I think looking down the list, this is probably the most difficult one I've had to do like I just I wasn't sure about how I wanted it but now I've got it where I want it and I'm, I'm quite right. happy with it but did you have any difficulty yourself in bringing uh, a score to these components I kind of did um I was debating whether and uh, this is one of those stories that I feel that you could either if you're not, I think, connected to everything involving it, and you could dismiss it, I think, as a very simplistic kind of story. And, But I think having all the work that we put into these books, you know, I, I gave it an extra muster about how I thought about it. And uh, I, I think I, I, I stand by my feelings that I found the backstory i thought was just was just wonderful and entertaining as hell to read and and i i, I really enjoyed that and it, it kind of it made you know the case built a framed around it um much more enjoyable but i will say that on the out right now just as we as we begin this i don't think it was really the greatest case that uh sherlock holmes did compared to other ones that we read for sure but it's probably one of the great backstories that Conan Arthur Doyle is so great at Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, Yoda talking like in uh, in this case, um, Ar- that Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, has uh, has done in my opinion. Yeah, right, we'll we'll flesh it out and then. Um, any reviews? Perfect length for a cuppa. Is that is that what you were told? Perfect length for a cuppa. I've got one here from a friend of ours, a friend oh, really? of ours, a friend of ours on the podcast, 
uh, not just this podcast, he has been cited before, but an earlier podcast where he was cited a lot. I'm talking, of course, about our good friend, the crime writer, Anthony Boucher. Oh, wow, Boucher, coming back yeah. from the James Bond days. Uh-huh. He claimed that Holmes, in this story, was at the top of his form. Allow me to quote from the good man himself. Free, Boucher writes, free from external eccentricities, his hand unburdened by either the cocaine needle or the violin's bow. Here is Holmes as the perfect thinking mind, in cryptanalysis, in observation, in deduction. And here, more than in any other canonical story that comes to mind, is Holmes at his most completely charming, whether playfully dangling the cryptically obvious before his colleagues, for once he respects them, or ruefully admitting, quote, a distinct touch, end quote, from Watson's humor. Because he's, he's more a fan of Arthur Conan Doyle than he is of Fleming, that's for sure. Yes, yeah. Well, he wasn't... He wasn't a contemporary of Fleming's competing for publication. No, and I, I and I got a feeling that uh, he probably w- would have got some heat for dissing uh, Sherlock Holmes with with, with his readers. Uh, yes, I think you're probably right, but you anyway. can't mess with the canon, literary canon, right? That's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Indeed, yeah. but we got like light- Goodreads here. We got oh, like, sorry, sorry, saying, sorry. Yeah, we got people saying like, "I got tricked." I got tricked. Okay. I am so done. Doyle is cancelled. I was initially very excited <laughs> to dive into the Sherlock canon because I've enjoyed both the TV series and the movie adaptations. Sherlock Holmes seemed to be a unique character with funny but lovable quirks, and so I knew that I had to get into the source material as well. Boy, I wish I never did. What? Ooh, wow. So far, I've read the complete novels and eight short stories from his last bow, and except that for The Hound of the Baskervilles, none were enjoyable, not even the slightest. Doyle's why, novels are the most boring, structural, awkward, and somewhat offensive. Okay, this is this guy's just an asshole. Wow, screw this guy. Um, <laughs> enjoyable, but not my favorite Sherlock Holmes. It didn't hang together quite as well as the rest. There you go. That's, that's, that's much better. I don't want that, okay. that guy had that guy had like a wall of text. Like I'm not going to get it. I'm not going. I'm not going to get into that. That's just ridiculous. Well, should I, we just light the pipes then? Yeah, let's just light these pipes, man. Okay, buddy. Yes, sir. What are you smoking today? I'm vaping. I'm not smoking. I'm vaping today. (laughs) You're vaping? That makes both of us. (laughs) What are the chances of both of us would be vaping on the same day? I think it was all the the, the talk about coal, you know, and the black lungs. It just kind of bothered me a bit. So I'm trying to cut it down. Yeah, absolutely. It makes total sense. No black lung for me. Well, little black lung anyway. Okay, lighten the pipes. Here we go. Episode 7, 16, whatever the fuck it is. I don't even know anymore. Uh, It's a long way through. I know that much. And we have got the Valley of Fear in front of us. Good plot summaries under our belt. Good publication histories under our belt. And now we're ready to get down to talking about the principles. Um, Marks or thoughts? What do you want first? What are your thoughts about the principles? Okay, my initial thoughts on the principles. Holmes is great at the beginning here, um, throughout part one, really, which is the Burlstone investigation. It's not explosively clever, I didn't find, or particularly adventurous, but he's sharp. And there's some really great rapport he has with not just MacDonald, but kind of, um, you know, uh, just, just 
just a whole family down there and not just yeah. a family i guess there's only one member of the family that we we know of. don't forget bill the telegraph boy or the bill, the bill yes oh yeah i got a note on him too actually uh this is like the, a, a baker street a, a, a regular who's allowed to come into the house and sleep over sleep sleep downstairs <laughs> or, 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 under no. the stair or something no he's not but billy is uh <laughs> the page as you say this is the first public identification of him he appears though in 10 sherlock holmes stories but he's only named three times in the canon here page boy page boy here and in two other stories that we haven't yet to read or we have yet to read the marison hmm. stone and thor bridge those are the only three times that we get bill the page boy so yeah anyway uh yeah so i didn't find about you know uh, i didn't find him overly explosive as i say but he was good. He was good. And yeah, good rapport with the Burlstone crew. I called them family a moment ago. That's wrong because uh, Ivy Douglas is the only one that's left, supposedly. Yeah. But uh, Cecil Watson, you know, he's good. He knows that there's something going on there, but he's not quite as quick as Watson is to jump to conclusions. Cecil, C- C- Cecil Barker? Cecil Barker. I said Watson. I don't know why. Yeah. I said, what, what did I, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Watson <laughs> himself, though, I find dull. Uh, surprise surprise even if and this was interesting to me like when douglas does come out of the curtain or out of the the hidden passage sort of thing and the scooby-doo moment you know uh i i don't get how douglas knows about him like some sort of a great historian did you get that he's like well you're i'll I'll leave this with you my tale of the uh of the scourers because you're your agent yeah 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 it's kind of like well, uh, obviously, because he writes the stories of Holmes, he knows him as a storyteller, I guess, and he figures that, you know, he, he should give it to him. Th- th- you know what, though? That's like the only bit of agency that Watson gets in the story as an official storyteller and like as a trusted confidant. Like, yeah. uh, in truth, I mean, he well, does he does he does get that little conversation that he picks up in the garden between yeah. between Douglas and, and Barker. But I wonder and we'll talk about this when we get to the investigation. Uh, I just wonder how much of this we're meant to believe is Watson's retelling of the story and how much of it is actually verbatim, that manuscript that he was given by Douglas. Like, is the entire second section that thing that Douglas says that he wrote in a ditch, right? Like, is that whole thing the story that we're given? Because if it is, then I got full props and credit to Douglas. I like how, st- how he wrote it in, 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 in a ditch. Like, that's pretty yeah. versatile. I yeah. mean... It's like uh, he must have had some like convenient paper in the di- in the ditch nearby, like what, old newspaper or I don't know, like a, a can- oil canvas or something. I don't know. Did he but write in his own blood or his urine or I don't know? Mm. Well, I felt that we've seen the we've seen both characters be better, but yes, Holmes here is on point when he's actually around. Uh, his his lack of presence though. I don't think should necessarily result in the low principles mark. Um, if anything, that'll be affected more in the, the narrative, you know, the investigation mark. Uh, but yeah, Holmes was good. I thought he was good. I liked the way he hung yeah. upon that dumbbell. I liked the way that he he was in this story a little bit like he was in, um, what was the story about the, oh, come on, help me out. The, the guy, the, the professor who... Um, Oh, the, the Pince-Nez. I found him very similar. The Pince-Nez. The Pince, the yeah, Golden yeah. Pince-Nez, yeah. I fi- found him, like, like there. Kind of a similar of, story, too. Someone coming out of the woodwork and stuff. Yeah, and, I guess uh, so. Someone, someone's kind of hiding in the room. But he knows yeah. something's up, and he's just trying to clue it out, you know, figure it out. And he's not being 
too generous with his thoughts or feelings, even though he trusts and we see respect McDonald. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I thought I thought it was good, and I like yeah, the way I like, I like the, the way he walked with White Mason. I, I'll, I'll mention that mm-hmm. White Mason too. You know, I, I thought that he was good with him, uh, and yeah. Watson Watson was okay. Uh, but you know what? It's it's really a letdown for Watson when we've come off the back of Baskerville. You know, where he was so important and so engaging. This is really just him in a longer short story where he doesn't do anything. Uh, and if Douglas hadn't given him the right as official storyteller and confidant of his tale, then he really wouldn't be worth much in this story. I really wonder if Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, did he have emotional investment when writing Watson? I, I think he just saw him as well a way of like uh, this whole presentation of of these story of these things being, you know, little stories written by Watson, almost like in a journalistic kind of way, and then being presented in a very dramatic format, uh, which Holmes hates, of course. Uh-huh. Um I'm just wondering, in, in the end, uh, it, we have to just fully admit this. As much as we want, you know, it'd be cool to have Watson having agency in some kind of sense. In the end, he's a functional. He's, he, he, he's, his, his purpose is purely functional. It is. He is it a is, witness but... to, to these actions, to these events. And we see it, to, and he describes it to us. So he's, he's kind of like uh, a bystander to everything. And I think just giving him agency a little bit, is, I think, is really all he, he needs uh, however, mm. I would say I don't know, man. I don't know that I agree with you there because it, all through I the adventures, it, I, all through the adventures of Sherlock Holmes and some of the memoirs too, we saw Watson, who wasn't just more active within with, within the drama of the narrative, but we saw him acting more in the shoes of the reader, asking the questions, being the voice of the reader that we would need. You know, like Conan Doyle yeah. was was far more deliberate in using him as a mirror yes. for the reader experience. And here he's just a guy that's in the room, sitting down and making the occasional comment. Like he is yes. not he's not as as animated or as important to the reading of these stories as he was in the first 15, 16 tales, I don't think. Yeah, I can I can see that to you. Um, I should mention that in the earlier in the earlier stories, going back to Hound of the Baskerville, even before, and even those those in the Avengers of Sherlock Holmes, the memories of Sherlock Holmes, he definitely had was a, he was a much stronger char- character. And I think there's a moment where where I think for the audience's sake and to give Holmes some humanity, that's why Watson is there, and that's why there was some effort put into his character by by Arthur Conan Doyle in those earlier stories. And we get to the point where we reach the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, where Watson is purely functional as, mm-hmm. as, as like a witness to these events to describe it to us. And the fact that he gets minor agency, like the the, the encounter with with Douglas with with uh, Ivy Douglas and Barker in the garden, for example, and the whole thing about him talking to Sherlock Holmes about it afterwards, and Holmes dismissing him, Holmes kind of like poo pooing and. Uh, Kind of treating him like shit in the beginning, actually. <laughs> yeah, he Come does. On. I'm just gonna, I'm just going to berate you, uh, you know, in, in a kind of a condescending kind of fashion, and and but you'll still help me figure this out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of it's it's a, not very a give and take relationship there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I do like though. I mean, I like the Baker Street moments at the beginning, the, 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 because although yeah. it is rapport that we've seen in the past, it has been a little while. I think to, I mean, I could be wrong in this, but I think it's been a little while since we've had an extended or a prolonged, I should say, discussion between the two characters. Like we've we've had a number of quick starts 
you know, in the short stories recently, throughout the return at least. And now we get the two of them sitting down having a chat and you get some character talk between them. So I like that development of the principles. And maybe that's just Doyle saying, well, I've got a novel now. I need to flesh these guys out a bit more than I do in a 30-page story. And that's cool. You know, I like that. And, yeah. and I like the this fact... Inter- Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, that little interchange is, uh, I, I think, kind of pulled me right into the world right away. And then it kind of just goes back to his previous settings once the story kicks into gear. That's right. And they exchange that back and forth that allows them to discern that this is Whittaker's almanac that they need to be looking through and then they find it. And so there's a bit of teamwork going on there. And and Holmes does um, give... Uh, give Watson a bit of credit you know he, he describes him as being both scintillating and brilliant in, in moments of you know um, hypothetical assumption and so there's some good stuff there uh, <clears throat> how would you interpret this passage okay go ahead your your native shrewdness my dear Watson that in a cunning which is the light of your friends would surely prevent you from enclosing cipher and message in the same envelope should it miscarry you are undone as it is both have to go wrong before any harm comes from it our second post is now overdue, and I shall be surprised if it does not bring us either a further letter of explanation, or as more probable, the very volume to which these figures refer. And they go back to the first part of that, the innate cunning which is the delight of your friends. <laughs> what is Sherlock Holmes referring to here? You know, like, <laughs> I, I think he's talking about the cunning, like the way he writes his stories and the way his admirers kind of fawn, well, I presume, fawn over his ability to tell you know a dramatic story. But I don't know. It's a bit of a, it's or, or, a bit of... or it's just completely derisive and he's ripping the shit out of him and saying, you have no cunning, so I'm going to build you up and rip you down. I think it's 50-50. I think it's down yeah, the line. Okay. I, I think it can go either way. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's just an example of the conversation that they have. Yeah, it is and... good. It's good character chat. I like it. Yeah, it is good character chat. And then when uh, Douglas comes in, sorry, not Douglas, but when uh, McDon- McDonald comes in, I like Sherlock Holmes here, though. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think this was maybe earlier in the relationship. So, so you, I guess see a little more direct, uh, in, uh, impatience with Watson in, in, in this particular moment. Um, and this is also when, when, when Holmes is on his Moriarty buzz. So he's probably also into the drugs on the side, too. So he's probably an irritable person in, the, in this whole time period. And uh, But, you know. He is informative here. He's at the top of his game, as uh, Boucher said, Boucher, and of course I say many, many times uh, in, in many of these principles uh, ratings. So Holmes, I get. I think it's a total Holmes and Watson. Holmes at the top of his game. I got no problem with his character here. This is the same kind of head to head that we get. I like Holmes' relationship with McDonald. It's I, 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 you can tell that he respects him, and 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 Arthur Conan Doyle's writing. Um, the whole like Mr. Mac thing, I kind of like that little little nickname he uh, gives mm-hmm. him, and there's like shows some connection there and, and some endearment. And, yeah, exactly, and how he treats White Mason. Um, and uh, I liked his admitting about how you know t- talking about Ivy Douglas and how I'm one of those people who are completely uh, you know uh, women are completely alien to me, but at the same time, um, so there's something wrong with 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 a, with a woman who is not reacting to unfavorably to, to the death of her husband so you know there's all these little observations and character moments that i think pull together very well and i like watson's garden scene and i like that scene when he comes back but again it's purely functional on his behalf and, and, and at this point in the sherlock holmes adventures and um overall i'm going to give it a generous four for the principles okay well that's the exact mark i gave them i as well feel that it is maybe a little generous um but again 
because Holmes and Watson are the epilogue of this story is only you know a couple of pages long they, they don't have a lot to do there after the the investigation yeah. unlike a study in Scarlet which is a little bit more has a little bit more breathing room for the characters the protagonists at the end I found it wrapped up quickly but again that's not necessarily a fault of the principals because when they are there it is pretty good it's pretty good stuff so that's more a structural thing, you know. We can't mark the principles down for that. Um, I really yeah. like the I really like the way Holmes works out with McDonald Moriarty and gets him to recognize these things. And the way he sits back in his chair while McDonald talks about, yes, I've been in that man's office, and yes, I've yeah. been very genial. And uh, and you know, he, he's very generous with his information. But he says to him, "Well, don't you find it strange that a man on a seven hundred uh, pound annual um, salary is able to?" collect at auction a 4,000 pound painting. And he's like, well, I never thought of that. And don't you find it strange that uh, he has um, very little money in the city of London, but he has uh, accounts on the continent? Like, isn't this weird? You know, and so just by asking those questions, the reader... About like that McDon- big painting, yeah. Yeah, the reader, like McDonald, starts to see that maybe there's more to Moriarty than meets the eye and that he shouldn't have been so quick to just kind of take at, at face value all of these things, you know. Um <clears throat> I, I I like the uh, name drop in this sequence here. It's good for that. I think I think Sherlockians probably love this little bit of paragraph because I think in other kinds of storylines that I'm a bit more of a fanboy on, there's little lines like that that are just great little rogue one, I guess, kind of details. Like, I happen to know who was the first link in his chain, a chain with his Napoleon gone wrong at one end and a hundred broken fighting men, pickpockets, blackmailers, and card sharpers at the other, with every sort of crime in between. His chief of staff is Colonel Sebastian Moran. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're going to the empty house. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like little name drops here and uh, and whatnot. So I'm sure the fans at the time just, you know, really picked it up. And it's yeah. really kind of the beginning of, really is the beginning of kind of like of, of a comic book like universe like here in many in many ways. We're, we do um, have some world building going on, and yeah, I'll, I'll sure. say more. I'll say more about that when we get to talk about the uh, the perpetrators because I've got some leading theories yes. here from the uh, Sherlockians and from what I've gleaned from my annotations on who Fred Porlock is, and you'll find this quite interesting. Anyway, oh, I, I, I went for a four as well, and um, yeah, I mean there are nice sequences in here, but. Because we're not considering uh, Holmes and Watson in discussion of um, the, the centerpiece characters, we can yeah, really could, leave them there, I think. Yeah, it could be argued that uh, some of the four I would also put, maybe make it a higher mark, maybe than 3.5 too, is even though he's kind of a, a perpetrator in his own way or a supporting character, I would argue that Bertie Edwards is almost a protagonist in this story as well. Well, he's definitely a protagonist in the... Tragic protagonist, if you think about it. In the middle part. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I guess you have to divide between the, the story. You got to break the story up between the Sherlock Holmes mystery and then, of course, the Sherlock, the uh, Arthur Conan Doyle American frontiers mi- mi- mystery story. Well, I, I consider them secondary because this is a Sherlock Holmes story, and our principles yes. are Sherlock and and uh, Watson. Yes. So, and we, we we must go by those those scoring as we always have. Yeah. I was just offering some out of the box uh, kind of uh, analysis. All right, buddy. Well, let's let's talk investigation. I went first sure. for principles, so uh, light your pipe on the eye investigation. Tell me what you thought, what you think, how you feel. Let's go. I love the investigation. I was drawn to this whole story to the get go. As soon as I figured out, I got that body. The X Files gave me that body switch. You know, um, that when the X Files gave me that body switch um, callback, it automatically made made me. Uh, 
start putting things together that sometimes that that something was uh not quite right and my theory turned out to be correct so i was really excited by that and uh i found the clues were well laid out uh, like most sherlock holmes stories are and if you go back and look for them they're definitely there and they connect and character wise it connected well in, in that fashion uh so the investigation itself uh just the investigation i, I you know i think is, is probably worth at least a 3.5 anyway and the twist with the bot, with you know, with switching the bodies of the murderer and the victim, um, I, I thought that was carried off quite well, and it and 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 that is and that and that wonderfully earns us a really great backstory to Bertie Edwards, uh, to the Scourers, to uh, Ted Baldwin, to that whole situation in Vermissa Valley. I, I think that connected really well, and um, and and that was just a great fun adventure on its own. Um, and I have no problems with that story whatsoever. Maybe I have some issues with how a bunch of guys were this whole, almost the entire gang are hiding out in this room to kill this one guy. It just seemed like that probably wouldn't have happened. You know, I think there would have been a better organization to, to that instead of like utterly consumed by their evil that they're stupid. Um, <laughs> yeah, I see but, what you mean. It, it, it <laughs> does seem a little unlikely that these guys... Yeah, yeah, that they've been able to they've been able to hold this whole area, not just the town, but the, the, yeah. largely this area in the palm of their hands by their clever and uh, you know rather sinister intelligence. And here, all of a sudden, they're all like, "Yeah, shit, boys, let's get together and get this guy." The stick of yeah. I don't know why they became southern all of a sudden. I apologize for that, but <laughs> well, the Cali accent back then, you know, is it kind of Maybe. western accent? It kind of fits. Okay, yeah. whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah. But I do like, yeah, it's funny too, because like these guys who are well organized and they have like this, you know, this valley of fear that they just pervade the entire tale. These guys are like, ends up almost being like in the movie Porky's where the guys are trying to peek into the girl's locker room, you know, and <laughs> we're, yeah, we're going to yeah. kill this guy. Good. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then all of a sudden, like, they've got the Bugs Buddy cartoon and then the cops show up, you know, like it's just like Porky's uh, yeah. Revenge. Yeah. Of course, Bugs Bunny cartoons don't normally end there, though, with like the hanging of uh, individuals. But uh, <laughs> it's an interesting contrast, I think, that um, I, I think how we look at drama today compared to back then and stuff and how we want to come off super we want to come off very serious and credible. But at the same time, uh, we kind of still throw make it too over the top in a way that we can't quite buy it in an emotional sense. Right. Mm -hmm. So. It's a, a bit of a disconnect, but you know it works. Uh, overall, I, I give uh, I give I, I give the investigation. Um, I give it a four. Okay. I wanted to give one to give it four point five. I really, really did, Scott, but uh, or Bowman, um, but I found that um, unlike the first story that that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote, the first novel that he wrote, the um, Study in Scarlet. I just didn't find all the pieces connect as well uh, compared to that first book. And I felt that the story was kind of unoriginal in the sense of Arthur Conan Doyle's kind of going back to this territory again, revenge from, from North, from America coming across the, you know, the sea and all this sort of stuff. But in, instead he makes uh, McMurdo slash Bertie Edwards slash Douglas into like uh, Jonathan Hope. But, uh, it uh, has kind of a slightly different twist to it and just to make it slightly more different. And uh, I like the idea of putting Moriarty in the storyline to give, I guess, you know, maybe Arthur Conan Doyle wanted to boost 
Moriarty maybe becoming a powerful character in the plays that were being done. I, I'm not 100% sure on that. But um, uh, there was a bit of an originality to, to, to the story in some parts. And I think that's why I, I gave it a 4, then a 4, then a, then a, I gave it a, then a 4.5. What are your feelings? Well, I, I was listening very carefully to what you were saying. Um, because I, 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 as you know, take this investigation, Mark, probably... Uh, I take this to be the most serious because we at the beginning of all of uh, all of these conversations when we set up our scoring system we agreed that investigation didn't just refer to what Holmes does and the backstory like the narrative but also how the story is written and its structure and all of these things right that that was yes. kind of the 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 uh, the literary mark, if you see what I mean, like yes, largely, 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 and this is where I had a lot of trouble. Um, so I'm I'm going to take you through my feelings here, and by all means, interject. Uh, let me know yeah. what you think, but just I'll, I'll tell you I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I I'll think. State, I'll, I'll state before you I'll state just before you begin. Okay. Um, I didn't. I'm not going to go in the. I didn't go in the detail in the way that you did because I guess I wasn't really overly impressed by the style in in the story as I was in previous ones. So I, I just kind of focused on what caught my eye more uh, in, in the investigation, Mark. Yeah, that's cool. That's fine. Um, I'm not going to necessarily go there either. You'll, you'll see that my points are largely structural, I think. Anyway, um, <clears throat> okay, so I agree with what you're saying. The story does have some nice twists, and they work too, I think. The... Involvement of Moriarty, though, I think is exceptionally weak from a, a, a novel, from a, a, a work of literature point of view. And I'm going to try to explain what this means. And it's just as well I apologize to the Sherlockians at the beginning of this because they're probably going to uh, really disagree with what I'm saying right now. But mm. I'm, I'm reading this not as not as an intrepid, um, you know, I don't have the Valley of Fear or the Sherlockian Society uh, branded onto my arm. So I'm not married to this canon. So I, I feel I feel quite safe as a regular um, lover of literature. And you think you feel safe. I think, you, I, I, think you, I feel safe. You, yeah. you never know. The, the Sherlockian scourers will come to you, my friend. They, they, Don't they, take that slow boat to Africa. Don't take that slow boat to Africa. Okay. I'll always make sure I'm driving with someone in the car. There you go. Anyway, the story is told to us, Right. Moriarty story like we're told all of this stuff we, we don't get to see any of it and so the world building is only truly as, to me at least it's only as effective as the fans desire to ephemeral. suspend it, it yeah how willing are you to suspend your disbelief buddy at the end of the day you know that that's what it is for me it's almost non-existent the motivator Porlock was underused and again enough for the story to take place like you were saying enough for us to get the Burlstone connection with the police enough for us to get a sense of a bigger presence in London in the world through you know this tangled web of Moriarty's but really it's a very poor very narrow look into the bigger world of crime and of Moriarty in London if this was supposed to be Holmes's swan song <clears throat> again um then I find this a real letdown given that this is the guy that's supposed to take Holmes to his death. You know, in a few years' time, he's going to chase him across Europe and they're going to confront at the falls. And then, you know, for that, for, for, for this to be the Moriarty, that we only get a little view of him. I think it's really cowardice from uh, Doyle's point of view. And Doyle doesn't owe me anything. We know that. But, you know, we're, we, we've got to be honest in how we feel about the story. So I'm not going to apologize for that. The Burlstone investigation... 
I think is really intriguing and it works to sink the reader. It marries up appropriately to the backstory of Vermissa Valley. It allows for enough suggestion and enough foreshadowing that the reader feels really encouraged and informed enough to guess things for himself. And it has been a while since, or I shouldn't say that, but it definitely has been less the case recently that we have felt informed enough to make guesses. And I like that about this story. This investigation, we're not watching and waiting for Holmes to just give us a big reveal, but we're noticing things like the dumbbell. We understand that Holmes is trying to tell the police investigator, uh, McDonald, look, you know, here's here's a, here's a house. Let me tell you about this house. It's got all kinds of tunnels and trapdoors and all kinds of interesting places to store things and people essentially saying, look, reader, there could be a body hidden here. There could be a person hanging around that hasn't really left the scene. You know, the murder might not actually be over as such. And so there is enough evidence there. There are enough features to the to, to the investigation to make us think for ourselves. And I like those stories the best. So that's yes. a good thing. But I mean, I don't need Moriarty for any of that, you know. No. So Porlock is still poorly used. The Vermissa Valley stuff is great. It's dark. It's bloodier. I'm sure we'll talk about this, but it's bloodier than anything Doyle has yet printed for Holmes. And it's really quite gruesome in some places. Um, maybe not by today's standards, but definitely by those standards. I mean, this this would have been right up there, I think, with, uh, you know, the gothic imagery of Baskerville and then some. Yeah, and then some. for sure, certainly. It's, um, it's as interesting as the backstory of A Study in Scarlet to me, but I didn't find it quite as pleasingly resolved. So here's structurally where I'm going to critique a little. Of what course. we what what do we have left of the Vermissa Lodge three forty one? I don't know. Do you? We need more information to show the leftover tentacles and indeed how connected to Moriarty this criminal network was. Is he the prime organizer now, or like is this like Spectre? Is he like an agent? Like what what's going yeah, on? Yeah, Hydra. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, you know, totally. Like you, you cut one head off and another. You cut two heads off and one more grows. You know, like who who is the new head of the organization? What hints were we given? Exactly. Is Moriarty connected to this group? I think yeah. that would have been interesting if they made some connection that Moriarty was like the head of the Scourers, like in in that, uh, like but maybe like a more of like a Masonic connection. Yeah. you know what I mean in in the story, and uh, I think that would have been interesting. But uh, it, alas, it didn't go in that direction. The writing is pretty engaging. Parts of the backstory, yes. though cluttered up by too many characters, and there are a shit ton of characters. What I think it, yeah. I think that the writing though is still as good as anything that Doyle has written. Like, he loves these let-me-take-you-out-of-London moments because... And this is something we have got to talk about at some point, okay? But I think he writes best when he's out of London. And I think yes. that is largely because he himself was not a London boy. You established at the beginning that a lot of what he writes about London is drawn from his understanding of Edinburgh and, and that environment. I don't think he is confident setting his crimes in London, even though he worked and lived there very, very briefly, because he doesn't have... Um, the he doesn't have the the Bedeker's index. He doesn't have the Whitaker's almanac information of the city, and yes. he's researching the city as he writes about it. How can you ever truly bring a place like that to life if you don't live in it, if you don't yes. breathe it? And so I think if you think about the best stories, 
they're outside of London. They're in the country. They're in Sussex. They're in America. They're wherever. These are the ones where he really lets himself off the leash to tell wild stories because he can bring those travelogues to life. And he doesn't feel perhaps like he needs to assess his insecurity about writing this enormously yes. empirical city. And I think that there's really something there that maybe at the end of the series, we can talk more about his relationship with London and perhaps the way he tiptoes around setting his story. I mean, for a detective... And his relationship with America. Yeah, because... Oh, totally. Because for a detective that's set in London, a guy who lives there, he's supposed to be the quintessential English uh, you know, detective for hire. He doesn't yeah. do he doesn't do a hell of a lot in London and London is an exceptionally dynamic place at this time in yes. the, you know the Edwardian era and the, indeed well I mean the, the chronology of the story the Victorian era you have got a booming it's becoming a metropolis you know you've got roads and undergrounds being built you have immigration patterns you've got so many wild things happening why yes. isn't Holmes fucking busy his ass every single why does he keep taking these country squire trips you know like why is he investigating the death yes. of lady so and so or the, the robbing of Mr. So and so's jewels when he could be in London dealing with the actual Spider-Man versus the Kingpin type stuff you know like, yeah, exactly. he's just not there and it, it has to come back at some point or in some measure to Doyle's own insecurity about the city and not understanding it well enough to write it. And I'll say, say this because we're dealing with the Valley of Fear. I think this is, t this is relevant. Moriarty, Moriarty to me is a London villain. He's connected to the politics, the organized crime. And I think Moriarty's lack of definition in these stories uh, um, is given and why he's so much bitterly portrayed in, other adaptations of Sherlock Holmes' work and other interpretations of Arthur Conan Doyle's canon, um, not as canon, but of, of his characters and of the end of that world is because they, they, the people who write those stories do the research on London and they make Moriarty an evil specter kind of villain uh, in London. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I think you you're said, right. The, the, the kingpin, they can characterize him, you know, in, in a better way than, mm -hmm. than Arthur Conan Doyle could. And I think that insecurity, as you mentioned, is one of the reasons why I think Moriarty just seems kind of like uh, less than great um, as we sort of feel about him. Yeah, exactly. And I think at the end of this, I think that's going to be the one big question mark. The one big disappointment is, is, you know, why so much fuss about Moriarty? He is an underused and underdeveloped feature in this canon. And if he really and truly was slash is the arch nemesis if he is the genius if he is the antithesis to holmes then he deserves a much greater spot in the canon he needs to be more developed we need to see him and his little organization being responsible yeah. and this is where i think i disagree with the sherlockians in their desperation to justify the existence of moriarty in the canon they go away and say oh remember the guy who ripped off jabez wilson and told him but well, he was part of moriarty's crew oh do you remember the guy who stole his own son and kidnapped him in the priory school he was part of moriarty's and like they, they just make these fucking guesses and i'm like you know what you're desperately trying to make this world something that it isn't it was a wonderful collection of characters some better than others that were created by this highly intelligent and capable writer and towards the end of his career he didn't even enjoy writing these stories so don't try to tell me that there's a world that exists where everybody was meeting up for drinks with moriarty's yeah. you know mcginty like crew like it just didn't happen yeah. And, exactly, and, and I, I don't he, like he's that. He's not Stan Lee. He's not Stan Lee. He's, you know, like that wasn't his forte. Exactly. He, to he had other things to do. Exactly. But anyway, let me finish up here. Um, <clears throat> I, I find 
taking all this into account, that there's a real imbalance in the narrative. We're left with uh, a really good 84-page section on Burlstone, which I would overall rate as a four. We are given a wonderfully descriptive and dynamic midsection in the Vermissa, which is about 88 pages. So about the same, parts one and two. I give that yep. a four. I give that a 4.5. Etty or F, Eddie's the character that just does my head in, so I had to take half mark away for her. Sure. But then we get to the epilogue, which is three pages, three lame pages. There's yes. a real, real sense of rushed, incomplete, can't be bothered. Let's make the deadline. Three fucking pages of an epilogue where we're promised we're going to get back to Baker Street. We only have time to look in the window of Baker Street before we're thrown out again, narratively speaking. So I give that a two. My overall mark for the investigation was a three because... By the time Vermissa section has ended, readers are wanting, as promised, like I said, a proper return to Baker Street. I get now, I totally get that Doyle was looking to leave things in a state of suspense with Holmes versus Moriarty and blah, blah, blah. But a few pages of resolution, Doyle, seriously. Give me more of MacDonald here, you know, for whom Holmes supposedly has both respect and time. That would have been nice to see. Many features that were established in the Burlstone episode were deserving of more time on stage, if you will, or on page. Also shine a bit more light onto Moriarty's world. That would have been very welcome. Tell me that you know more about mm-hmm. what's going on and his connection to to the um, Vermissa Valley Lodge. Tell me something that, that, that that's interesting, you know? I mean, it would have made sense. But instead... We don't, we don't, we don't get that, you know. And so from from the from the narrative, I guess, I this... guess I've been numb to so many uh, uh, kind of lame epilogues, as you said, that we get here. Like we don't get that emotional connection to uh, to to the victim or the case at all. No, there's we no, really don't. There's we no don't. callback. Like no. here, think think about it. Can you imagine if we had got the epilogue like written by Watson at the very end of of Douglas, you know, saying goodbye and then going overseas, going on the boat, and then Watson describing his death and what happened to him. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been um, much more dramatic and powerful, you know. But in you see, end. yeah, exactly. But, he, but, he, he, exactly. but Douglas is killed off, like Bertie Edwards, he's killed off in a footnote. You're totally right. And that's it's so disappointing because criminal. It, because what he says at the beginning, Holmes even says to him, Douglas, this is not over. You're not safe. And if yes. he thought for a second that Moriarty was behind all of this, as very clearly through Porlock's uh, instruction he is then Holmes would have wanted to keep a better eye on him to see if maybe he could get an advantage over but but the fact yes, that Holmes right. just lets him and Ivy disappear that I don't fucking buy that at all unless he knew he was sending them off to their death like I just I don't understand that and so this this lack of resolution really bothers me and I think Doyle could have done an exceptionally better job even 10 more pages of an epilogue would have felt like I'm ending not on like a bang but on like this really descriptive line you know so and overall, not with the bang. Well, my yeah, I mean, it ended abruptly, I guess, which is why I say bang. But overall, my verdict on it is that the story suffers from not being generous enough in its world building and its resolution. If you want me to care about Moriarty and take him seriously, then you've got to write their rivalry as something that's a little bit more serious, you know. Um, and you know, it's, Moriarty's role in the final problem in the empty house, uh, we already know as readers, and so. I don't think we need another study in Scarlet with some tenuous links to Moriarty. Regardless okay. of how good the Vermessa Valley backstory is, I, I just don't think we need that. So I went three overall. I love the Vermessa Valley backstory, and I love the Burlstone backstory. If this was a standalone without the confusion of a greater criminal network, I think it could work just as Study in Scarlet worked a little bit better. But 
this this narratively structurally is really imbalanced for me and i don't a bit, like a bit of a hot i don't mess, like eh? it a hot mess that's a nice way to describe it so i went for a three went for a three dink yeah i guess you to say i'm gonna stay at my four i sure. love vermissa valley i i do too uh, buddy I, I, I do too I, and i'm gonna go but but i wasn't really I, and I just didn't care about the the surround the framing. I, I didn't care too much about the overall mystery case. I just like the whole Vermisha Valley background, and I was disappointed that it, you know it was cut down by a by a weak epilogue and, and dramatically. And yeah, I'll, I'm going to stay with my four. I think I really enjoy this story as a whole, and I, I, my I agree with your feelings on on how it failed as a story overall, but. I'm I'm going to be a stubborn Gus and stay at my four. I could go to a three point five to be fully generous. I could do that, but I'm going to stay. I'm going to stick with my uh, my uh, four because I don't know. I really like Vermissa Valley, and I'm uh, I just think it was a great s- story and a product and an example of of how good a writer um, um, Arthur Conan Doyle sh- should be. Unfortunately, it has kind of a weak Sherlock Holmes story framed around it. Mm-hmm. It does indeed. This might be a nice opportunity, a nice place to take a break and have our first musical selection. We're going to move on and talk about perpetrators, and this will, of course, steer us into Vermissa Valley. And uh, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't play this for us, Josh. Uh, we have actually cited this film score earlier um, in the series, in fact, back when we did the Boscombe Valley, if you remember that one. Oh, but okay. here, here it fits, I think it fits much, much better. Uh this is the main titles, or these are rather the main titles, of John Barry's score to The Last Valley. And for some of the characters in this story, Vermissa oh. Valley is The Last Valley. So I think it sets nicely the atmosphere of what we love so much in the, uh, in the Vermissa part of the narrative. So I'll play this and be back in just a second. Enjoy. Okay. <laughs>
that doesn't get you charged up for a train ride into Vermissa Valley, what will? Yeah, seriously. And it kind of captures, um, I think, uh, emotionally and uh, a lot of the this the, the, the kind of the, the visual metaphors and descriptions that uh, and symbolism, I guess you could say, that Arthur Conan Doyle has of like this, you know, like the, the American frontier, you know, corporations taking control. But then but then the dark way in which the working man is trying to take it back in its own in its own violent way, a struggle for you know, the, 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 the America dream, you know, and I think that's uh, a really interesting, um, spin that he's, he's put, he's put, he's put, put on this. And I think many authors have explored that whole darkness of the American dream thing, but, uh, Doyle almost gives it a Gothic feel. I, I think with the word, I think Gothic was the word that you used. And I fully agree with that description. Yeah, indeed. Almost done. Uh, but just before we pop into uh, perpetrators, there's one little note I wanted to share with you regarding uh, the investigation, and I'm quite curious to see what you think. There's some belief among scholars that Holmes should never even have needed Douglas's story in order to explain things. They reckon that he should have been able to recollect the infamous trial of the scourers of Vermissa Valley from 15 years ago, and be able to put the American shotgun, the symbol on the arm, and the number 341 together to formulate a hypothesis, if not a conclusion, given what we've seen from him in other pieces. Just let me read this to you. Uh, this is a note straight from uh, Klinger's annotations. Cornelius mm. Helling, in a letter to Sherlock Holmes' journal, wonders why Holmes, a walking calendar of crime, needed John Douglas's explanation at all. Upon observing, uh, upon observing the shotgun... Uh, from the Pennsylvania Small Arms Company, the brand on the dead man's forearm, and above all, the card with the initials VV and the number 341 crudely scrawled upon it, why did he not instantly remember that trial of the infamous scourers? And it, it, it's really quite interesting, you know? Like, um, I, I was kind of wondering the same thing. Not, yeah, that's a good point. Like, Holmes has an index of crime, right? And a knowledge World, of all these worldwide. things. Worldwide. Yeah, exactly. Worldwide. I mean, he, he knows the ins and outs of all the European royal families. And certainly he knows what's going on in the hotspots of America. And this would have been a massive news especially story. If the, especially if the if an organization that was so prevalent back in America at the time, the Pinkertons were involved. Yeah, I mean, what's your thought on that? Do you think that that's just maybe Cornelius Helling and other scholars like him who just kind of taking a, a jab at Holmes and Doyle and saying, Doyle, you kind of slipped up here or what? Uh, I think it's a, I, I think, I think it's a realistic criticism. I mean, and, and it's a fair criticism. Um, it's basically you're, it's kind of like it's at a slightly out of character for Holmes, not, not to recognize something like that. And therefore mm. um, it's a bit of a lazy writing, I guess you could say. Hmm. I never really thought about that until you mentioned it. And well, you know, I, had, I hadn't either. I thought about, I wondered, you know, should he not know something about this? But I didn't think about it the way that it was positioned here in this note. So I'm gl quite glad that I came across it because it did make me think. But I figure for contemporary readers, maybe they wouldn't be quite as switched up on Holmes's knowledge of America or I, I don't know. I don't know. It's very possible. And uh, especially... Back then, too. I mean, I mean, yeah, it was written for American writers, but it also had a primarily English audience as well. Hmm. And a lot of them are going to remember the Molly Maguires or something like that, or yeah, something similar, yeah. to, or something similar that didn't really affect them too much, you know. Um, the, the the only one other point I had that I thought maybe could 
add a bit to the narrative. Um, do you want to know anything about the background of the Pinkerton Detective Agency? It's kind of interesting stuff. I have seen my share of Western, so I am aware of the organization. Okay. But I would like to hear some more about it if you think it can kind of like uh, sh sh shine a light, you know, uh, on onto onto the proceedings. Well, it's only one it's only one column of information, but I think it's kind of interesting. Uh, the Pinkerton National Detective Agency was founded by Alan Pinkerton, uh, a Scotsman who emigrated to Illinois in 1842. He settled in West Dundee near Chicago and opened up a cooper's shop there. An ardent, an ardent abolitionist, Pinkerton allowed his shop to serve as one of the many stations on the Underground Railroad, which is pretty cool. While chopping wood one day on an uninhabited island in Fox River, Pinkerton stumbled upon evidence that led to the arrest and capture of a gang of counterfeiters, which is cool because it's kind of counterfeit that, you know, is one of the uh, ruses in this story too. Yes. His pivotal role in bringing down the gang resulted in his name being, uh, his name, his being named rather, Deputy Sheriff of Kane County in 1846, then the first city detective of Chicago's police force. But Pinkerton quickly saw that he would never make his fortune as a cop. In 1850, he left the Chicago force to start his own private detective agency, the first of its kind in Chicago and one of only a handful in the country. The Pinkerton National Detective Agency specialized in train robberies and achieved many spectacular successes, including no less than thwarting of an 1861 assassination attempt on President-elect Lincoln in Baltimore. During the mm -hmm. Civil War, Pinkerton worked for the Union side, heading an organization that gathered intelligence on Confederate activity. After the war, detectives from the Pinkerton Agency did indeed infiltrate the Molly Maguires. The sign above the door of the agency featured the motto, We Never Sleep, accompanying the illustration of an eye, an indelible image that gave rise to the term private eye. Among the 16 books attributed to Pinkerton as part of Alan Pinkerton's detective stories are, as we've seen, The Molly Maguires and the Detectives, viewed by many historians now as a highly biased work on the labor dispute and criminal reminiscence and detective sketches from 1879. This is not the canon's only reference to the famed Pinkerton Agency. A detective named Mr. Leverton of the Pinkerton's American Agency provides assistance and vital information to Holmes and Watson in a story we haven't yet read entitled The Red Circle. So there you go, a little mm. context to back up. It's cool. That's really neat, yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting too, when I put about Chicago, and you know, and because McMurdo slash Bertie Edwards coming from Chicago, Chicago at this time, um, was the gateway to the West. Um, still is. It, was like, it really still is in many ways. Um, even like, uh, there, I think there was key cities like uh, Chicago and, and St. Louis on the Mississippi were like the gateway cities to the frontier. And so it was, this was, almost, it was there was like very much like a way station feel to these big, uh, to, 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 to these uh, large American, even for the time, cities. And and so you can just imagine uh, the the dens of inequity going on in that place. Yeah, I mean they were they were meeting points, a nexus really of rail and and road and trade, yeah. livestock particularly. You know, I mean they're big, yeah. big trading spots. And so uh, at such confluences, it's not surprising to see organized crime and the need for um, detective agencies, I guess, to kind of yeah. crop up. You know. For those also who know history of the American West at the time too, and of the front end of the frontier and whatnot, um, and of course, and maybe, and if you're if you're familiar with the HBO series Deadwood, which is based on historical characters, um, the proprietor that Ian McShane of the of the tavern that Ian McShane of the brothel that Ian McShane plays elsewhere in he was from Chicago originally, and he brought his 
he's he he made the trek out from Chicago to the Black Hills of Dakota to make his claim there and 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 was a member of the Deadwood camp and so did his fictional uh counterpart was also from chicago again it's just showing examples of and some of these people went out to dodge city or it went to uh out to kansas city for example whereas the frontier spreads and spreads um after the civil war yeah it's good building a setting in this story and doyle picks good settings doesn't he like studying scarlet's great backstory and that first opening or that second section the opening of it you know with the 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 vultures circling uh it's just great. And I really like this frontier pioneering stuff. It would have been really, really sellable as well in, I think, for narrative writing. And, you know, it, it's cool. It gives the whole Robert Service type thing, you know, the Klondike yes. towns. And there is that, that I guess, that thirst in all of us to go get rich, you know. And so you can see why a guy like McMurdo could pass easily as uh, a lodge member, you know. Was it uh, like, isn't it the shooting of Sam McGee or something like that? Yeah, yeah, the shooting of Dan McGrew and the Dan cremation McGrew, of yeah. Sam McGee. Cremation, yeah, cremation of Sam McGee. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, I got my mix mixed up. Anyway, great perpetrators. Uh, why don't you spend a couple of moments taking me through your feelings on Boss McGinty, Ted Baldwin, Evans Pot, the whole works of them, and then uh, and then then I'll share mine. Yeah, I would say that this is the strongest part of the entire story. And I gave this the highest marks. I gave per- perpetrators four point five. Hmm. Um, you could say that in a way, McMurdo and uh, Bertie Edwards Douglas is a perpetrator in his own way because he did kill the victim. I guess you could say, but that's very very thin. Um, Blackjack McGinty, what an incredible uh, villain. Um, it, there's something just so demonstrous about the man, but at the same time, there's something also eerily human. And it's almost like as if he just can't, he comes out of the pages of history, this guy, you know, like I'm sure there was, you can believe that there was men like him out there, you know, who, who lived in these mining camps and, and put a specter of fear over everyone, you know, like it's a kind of a perversion of the American dream of, you know, the worker making his way in the world and the corporations are coming. So we're going to fight back. Uh-huh. But instead of pushing these corporations who are normally portrayed in many other narratives as being the evil force, we have the working man striking back, but using methods and uh, that, you know, these companies would, would pay mercenaries to, uh, to, 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 to do, claiming they were doing it for the right of the working man. But at the same time, they were terrorizing the working man who, who wouldn't stay in their way. Um, kind of like, I guess it's a precursor to the, unions of uh you know of 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 modern america you know being connected to the mafia and what whatnot very well, i was going to ask you about that like because i sense that there it's is some, some like something Jimmy symbolic Hoppa going on here maybe heavy-handed at points uh, by doyle or on his part uh, to criticize this sort of organized workforce because unions and the suffragette movement starting to warm up now too, isn't it? In uh, yes. in in Britain, and we know that he has, we know that Doyle has sympathies towards uh, women's um, not just labor, but uh, labor uh, laws, but also kind of the whole emancipation of their domestic slavery, if if that's not too grandiose a term. And not to mention the early beginning of Bolshevism too. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, do you do you read this as some sort of um, an allegory for so, the corruption so, of unions? Yeah, socialism equals evil as well. You could probably probably put in there as well the idea of like uh, egalitarianism in, in the end is e- equals Marxism, and therefore it's an evil goal, and we're gonna we're gonna display 
this brotherhood of people in this fashion. You know what I mean? Like um, we're we're not we don't care about the individual anymore. We're looking out after ourselves as a whole as a, a community. But that community really is not portrayed in a positive light at all. Hmm. And uh, I think McGinty was kind of like the beacon. All this was going around. And uh, uh, I think, as I said, there are people who were definitely like him. And Arthur Conan Doyle knew, knew, knew this, and he writes this way. I think and there that's are people that are still like this in small communities. Oh, yes. Even more so. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you you go any kind of – you read anything about in the newspaper or media about small towns and – you know, the people who have an influence in these communities and stuff and uh, and how the control that they have. And you don't know what they're doing behind closed doors, right? And we find these things out years later. But, I mean, this kind of influence exists, you know, through, as I said, through unions, through um, Hell's Angels, motorcycle gangs, uh, the mafia, uh, Irish mob, Russian mob. I mean, you have this brotherhood of people um, protecting – on the pretense of protecting the common man. And, in fact, all there are is they're protecting their own interests and F the rest of the world or the rest of the community. If, if, if you don't fall in the line. Well, what about McGinty's uh, underlings? What do you think? Oh, there's like, there's scrawny Ted Baldwin, a uh, wonderful sketch of a, of, of, of a character. Um, I would say he's a little weak in the sense because he's basically the rival for him, for Eddie's affections between McMurdo and, and them. So uh, you understand that even that he's, that even though he's in a kind of an agent of vengeance, uh, uh, that, uh, that the Scourers sent to England uh, to take out um, Bertie Edwards. There's also a, a, a personal hatred as well. So you can just imagine that was a vicious, vicious fight, you know, in that uh, in, in, in that study. Sorry, dude. Had to step out there and take a chat just a quick right. minute or so. I missed what you were saying. Can you summarize the last 30 seconds of your life? Powering well, up. Sorry. 30 seconds of my life. Yeah, last 30 seconds of your life, please. What was the last thing you heard? Uh, I heard that you were talking about... Oh, fuck it all. I don't remember. Come on, man. Just pretend it didn't matter. Take me through it. Do you want to start from the beginning? Like, What part do you want me to start from? Ted Baldwin, um, Scrawny Ted, Scrawny Ted. Yeah, Scrawny Ted. So two connections with this guy. Uh, one, he's the ages of vengeance that the Scourers send to take out Bertie Douglas. Uh, sorry, B- Bertie Edwards. <laughs> I've got the names books up there. And uh, he's also there for personal reasons because he hates, uh, from the very beginning, he hates Bertie Edwards' guts because of uh, his feelings for Eddie. Um, and really not really great feelings he initially had for Eddie in the first place. But mm-hmm. at the same time, he just hates he, he hates the guy. So you can imagine that was a vicious little knife fight before the shotgun blast. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he, and he, uh, he went all the way himself there. You know what I mean? And right into his home and stuff like that. Like uh, uh, that, that guy. Would, you make him wonder. Like if once he had killed McMurdo, like, sorry McMurdo slash Bertie Edwards, what would he have done from there? You know what I mean? So it's, it's very interesting. I wonder what the plan was. Yeah, exactly. Like with Mrs. Douglas and. Uh, you know, Barker paid the price too. You know, because they probably knew about him and Barker making a fortune out in California too, right? So yeah, I, rec- I reckon he would have torched the place or tried to. Yeah, 
it, it, it would have made a statement. You know what I mean? I think that was the whole point of it. So uh, he was just a little piece of scum. So I, you know, but he, he, uh, he was a great little detail, I think in, in that story. So he worked very well. Um, other perpetrators, like there was that like tiger Cormac guy, that young crazy dude, that was, yeah, those little, yeah. just like little violent little caricatures. They were a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, McGinty stands out the most though, man. Like, uh, that's like, as I said, like some powers booth kind of motherfucker, you know, like with just, <laughs> just has control over everyone's lives in the town and doesn't give a damn about killing kids and families. Like there's just, uh, he, he totally believes in his cause. And I really think that in a way, um, this is Arthur Conan Doyle's, uh, I think his view, I think on socialism and unions and community, uh, and how the community can be seen and socialism and these egalitarian ideas we have like um the suffragettes and whatnot are maybe possibly dangerous things in our society especially in 1914 you know with the rise of coming bolshevism and i i think uh, there was uh, w- there was something in the air and uh doyle smelt it and mm. i think he was that's what he was talking about here and i think uh and how it would also infest itself into a modern america which it did these little uh free these little masonry these masonry little groups you know um, that kind of show the beginnings of like, you know, the Hell's Angels and the Mafia and other Irish gangs and, 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 and so what these brotherhoods. Are they a good thing to keep the community around? Well, that's their, pre- that's their pretense, you know, that's their pretense. But really, in the end, it's all about their own individual power. And McGinty and his stature and the way and his dark appearance and um, his attitude of holier than thou and, and, and monstrous evil that he unleashed upon the land. I think uh, Fitz is a great, great villain. And that's why I give him such a high mark. So you went 4.5 for Perpetrators overall? I did. I, yeah. I, I did. I, I don't think Marissa Valley's storyline wouldn't have been wouldn't have worked without the, the villainy and the understandable villainy in, in, in its own kind of, kind, kind of way, you know, like the banality of evil, I guess you could say. Yes, and that the banality of evil. Isn't that a quote from Casino Royale? Isn't that what uh, the French agent says to him? Yeah, it's also a comment I think made upon I think so, someone made about the uh, Nazis back in the day too. Oh well, okay, better company. Who are also there, kind of socialists in their own way too. Well, yes, you could say that. Um, <clears throat> you could say that, and then some more. Yes. For me, I'm not far off you. I went four overall for okay. the perpetrators, and um, I'm also looking. And the reason I marked them down a little more to than than you did is because we're meant to see Moriarty as a perpetrator as well and I just don't uh, but I'll, I'll get there I'll get I, there I I think I mentioned in my in my thing that I'm don't really see him as a as a presence at all to be honest with you but we're meant we're meant to if if we see if, I know. if if we're if we're meant to believe that it was one of his guys that went and took care of Douglas on the boat then yeah, I think we have to see him as connected to this, you know, and having he's having given him the situation. tip, yeah, and Porlock's involvement. Like, uh, I think it's hard to say that he's not the outer frame, that his criminal network isn't the outer frame to this. So, anyway, the, the one permiss- could argue they could be supporting characters. One could, but they're perpetrators. The narrative. They're, yeah. they're perpetrators because they bring yeah. Holmes into it. Uh, well, if they didn't, I guess um, McDonald would have, but. Nevertheless, uh, Vermissa Valley, yeah, what I say, it comes to life in its villainy, like a Klondike town, as we've already said, full of Robert Service-esque characters. While well, Moriarty's value is given to us through exposition by Holmes, at the start, he has no real agency in this story, 
The members of Lodge 341 are almost cartoonish in their color and their character. I really, really, really like them. I buy into their rivalry uh, and their whole outpost existence. Like It almost feels like... I don't know if you felt this, right? But I, I did. Like... Uh, you can see the same type of setting happening, and I have seen the same type of setting happen in dystopian science fiction, you know, where you've got these corruptible planets and these guys like McGinty who just established themselves as like outpost leaders. Okay. I, I, like, I, I, I've seen, you know, think about Total Recall, right? And I know it's more mechanized and I know it's more um, corporate, Total Recall, but this idea of having criminals behind the big agencies. Like I can see a McGinty working well in like an an off-world outpost, can't you? Oh yeah, I was going to say also too. Like think of um, uh, guys like um, like Robocop, like uh, Dick yeah, Jones. Good one, like yeah. Dick yeah. Jones, you know, you know, he him controlling OCP and mm-hmm. and ruling and ruling all all the mass all the organized crime as a corporation over Detroit, right? Mm-hmm. And then creating weapons and technology to use against the crime that he's creating to make more money, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I really think to echo something you said a moment ago uh, that we've been talking about, that Doyle has pretty dynamic views on the practices and values of secret societies within and without union involvement, you know, in these types of towns. That probably merits discussion on its own, uh, on on its own kind of stage. But I love the range of villainy here, too, because they're not all McGinty's. Like, you've got a brother no. Morris. You've got Mike Scanlon. You've got yes. good good characters mixed in there. They're yeah. not, they're not Scanlon, cut in 100% caught up, like, in there because he's kind of dumb. Um, then you have, like, Baldwin because he's a piece of shit, and, he, he tra- and, and McGinty tracks him like flies easily because of his nature. And you, like you said, you have Morris, right, who's, who's forced to do what he has to do, right? Like, he has no choice. Uh, for for his family, for his business, you know what I mean, like yeah. for his livelihood. But but I mean, you... Scanlan Scanlan says he couldn't kill a guy. He says he he can't do it. Like yeah, I I like yeah, that. He's, he's yeah, I like that. Yeah, he, exactly. He wouldn't do it either. Well, yeah, and then you he... have like Tiger Cormac, you know, mm-hmm. and Andrews, those who are just like cold blooded killers who just do it for money, you know, and that's it. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. more like henchmen almost. Yes. So absolutely. you've got this moral compass that is seen through some of these perpetrators, and I think that spectrum. Makes it... Yeah, Spectrum. I think it makes it really interesting. Doyle has a sensitivity to realism that he wants to maintain here, and I like that. So, you know, if not for the underdeveloped role of Moriarty and the connection that we don't really understand of the Lodge to him and his network, I would have probably gone top marks here for character, uh, for perpetrators. I really would have, because I think that there's some great figures here. Because you're also thinking at the start that Cecil Barker is... A perpetrator hiding things and we don't know why and maybe his wife is you know ivy douglas is involved in something so there's a real range of believable and corrupt values within these figures and we can sympathize with them some of them too but for me to take moriarty seriously as a kingpin that somehow has a far reach that even in part controls this area Nah, yeah. man, I, I can't do it. Not on such limited, yeah. not on such limited content in the story, in the narrative. He's no itself. kingpin. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's not. Um, and I don't. I, I think it's really disingenuous to ask me to believe that. So I, I just can't get over it. And so for that reason, I went down to a four. But hey, we're still talking about a really good, engaging set of perpetrators here. So yeah, that's where that's where we are. You're four five, and I'm at four. Uh, what about? Sorry, I go think ahead. before we be, before we, I think we should end off the perpetrators. I think I think in this exchange when McMurdo first meets McGinty, 
Okay. Um, I, I just think it's worth mentioning. I think it's a great moment. And uh, there, there's just some really great writing and dialogue here. Go for it. McMurdo pushed open the swinging door of the saloon and made his way amid the crowd of men within through an atmosphere blurred with tobacco smoke and heavy with the smell of spirits. The place was brilliantly lighted and the huge, heavily gilt mirrors upon every wall reflected and multiplied the garish illumination. There were several bartenders in their shirt sleeves, hard at work mixing drinks for the loungers who fringed the broad, brass-trimmed counter. At the far end, with his body resting upon the bar and a cigar stuck at the acute angle from the corner of his mouth, stood a tall, strong, heavily built man who could be more none other than the famous McGinty himself. He was a black-maned giant, bearded to the cheekbones, and with a shock of raven hair which fell to his collar, almost hinting that when you were the shock of raven hair is usually a description given to um, indigenous, indigenous people of, 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 of American Westerns. Um, so there's kind of like a savagery kind of, uh, set, um, I guess, imagery that, um, that Doyle is trying to put here. His complexion was as swarthy as that of an Italian, and his eyes were of a strange dead black. Okay, we're getting kind of racist here. Which combined with a slight squint gave them a particularly sinister appearance. All else in the man, his noble proportions, his fine features, and his frank bearing fitted in with that jovial man-to-man manner which he affected, that kind of like person suit that he wears, you know? Uh, here, one would say, is a bluff, honest fellow whose heart would be sound, however rude as his spoken words might seem. It was only when those dead, dark eyes, deep and remorseless, were turned upon a man that he shrank with him in himself, feeling that he was face-to-face with an infinite possibility of latent evil, with the strength and courage and cunning behind it, which made it a thousand times more deadly. Boom. I, mm. I just think that's an excellent description of a man like this. He is good, isn't he? And um, it's fun. I sense that Doyle's having fun when he's writing about him, you know? Oh, he is. He's having a blast. Mm-hmm. Um, what what about like okay maybe it's too early to ask this question but where do you see this guy McGinty keeping in mind that he was based on you know probably a large leader of a very real story right through of the Molly Maguires yeah 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 where do you see him as written maybe settling once the dust falls in the pantheon of perpetrators in the canon top five. Well, see, that's a tough one, isn't it? Because I think as yeah. written, as written, yes, he is. But he's not a perpetrator that Holmes ever does anything with. No, he doesn't. It's kind of, it's the sadness that Holmes ever came up against. I wish Holmes came up against this guy. I think that, I think that would have been even greater if, if somehow, out of his own curiosity for the case, if Holmes had made his way out to Vermissa Valley, you know, mm. I think that would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. That would have been, but that that would have been an epic in more than just a, a novella. <laughs> Yeah, I know, but I think that should have been, it, should, it should have been written. It should have been written. Yeah. Well, hey, good. Okay, cool. That's a nice way to finish off the perpetrator. Holmes probably be in dis- Holmes probably probably be dis- in disguise as McMurdo the whole time or anything. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> he could do with all his disguises. Well, he fakes a, rela- he fakes a relationship with Eddie to you know to to get to get along. <laughs> well, we know he's not above that because he he is engaged to uh, Milver- Milverton's housewife or housemaid. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> ridiculous. Um. I would also, I'm not going to read it, but I'd also recommend listeners um, to really soak up the the scene where McMurdo goes and talks with Brother Morris at on, on top of the hill because that that's a really engaging moment too. And and you sense there's a little bit of heartstring pull in there. Like McMurdo wants to accept and comfort this guy in his anxiety, but he can't because it would blow his cover. You know, I, I really like that kind of human writing yes. that's there. 
and how he and how he does he, he's not comfortable with when they're attacking the newspaper editor and stuff like that yeah yeah uh, okay, let, let me move on to environment. I will say my bits and then I'll let you go. I'm, and some of it's repeated, so I'm just going to skip over it because it talks about um, the rural versus the, the urban environment. But okay. I think I think there's a lot here to praise in the story and to enjoy. London is really non-existent. Doyle opts yes. for the safety of his rural environments once again. While it does suit the overall story of a uh, you know of a twice marked man looking to avoid detection so he wouldn't go into the city I'm, I'm okay with that Burlstone Sussex it, it also enables Holmes to get out of London and it suited Doyle's lack of confidence in writing about the city and all that stuff that I I really feel we can't ignore but it makes sense given the story that he would he would wind up in a place like Burlstone Douglas or um, uh, Peckerhead what's his name Pinkerton boy Bertie Edwards. Yeah, Bertie Edwards, Peckerhead. Uh, but we've got tons here to chew on, man. We've got Burlstone House with its gables, its moat, its state of disrepair and repair, its secret history of conflict and connection to tumultuous uh, tumultuous past. Uh, Burlstone's moat itself really helps to assuage the feeling of oh god, another country home. As I as I you yeah, know, isn't like, uh, Burlstone described as like a it's like a Jacobean house, eh? It is, but Burlstone itself is actually based on Groombridge Place in Tunbridge Wells, which is a real moated manor home. Uh, there's more info on that, and indeed, it's an estate you can visit. But that's kind of what what gave the uh, writer inspiration for this. But okay. did you did you not feel like the fact that we have another one of these country homes with gables where a big crime is committed? But at least now he's doing something different he's giving it a moat and the moat is important because of the yes. dumbbell and i think that that gives us something of a relief it's not just a red herring you know the dumbbell is yes. pretty cool you know or yeah, we is. know something we know something's up at this place that's the, right we're, yeah. We're, yeah we know that there's something more to it than that and then, and then you've got the famous the you know the locked room mystery the, the crime scene itself which is pretty cool it's not the yeah. best we've seen but it's cool but then of course we've got vermissa the township, uh, Gilmerton Mountains, that whole train ride in, the Valley of Fear, Helmdale, Lodge 341, and all of its ongoings, the smoky pubs, and all this stuff of the yes. kind of the boom town. So, although the geography and the climate of the environment uh, are given more detail and more coverage, maybe, than the specifics of the town itself, I still think we get an excellent feel for this boom um, area, you know, this kind of uh, come here, get some money get rich and its whole infrastructure you know shops general store the lodging houses like the shafter and shafter family themselves you know how they try to they try to keep their own business going with all of these migrant workers you know lodging in their homes overall dark oppressive feel of the mining environment suits i think the characters and it sits heavy on the the noble or the good figures within vermissa even if some of them are really a really kind of pastiche you still get this nice this nice move you know Mm-hmm. Um, what was your final score for the environs, by the way? Oh, sorry, dude. I didn't tell you that, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> da, 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 yeah, I wanted to go five, but something's keeping me back. And I don't know if it was that we didn't get as much interior decoration that I'm used to seeing. I, I don't know if that's what it was, but I went 4.5. Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, was I also, thought it was great. I was, I was also at 4.5. As I said, like... Um, the villains, the environs, um, were, were, were two of were two of three really strong, strong parts of this storyline, um, where it may have failed a little bit in the in the investigation slash the narrative uh, structure. Um, I think environs was very, very strong. I agree with you that London was not really fleshed out, and we've been to London before. Not much to do. Arthur Conan Doyle's not really into London, or doesn't really write confidently about it enough to give us a you know those gory details. But he loves those country gables and and 
country gable houses and whatnot and manors. So mm-hmm. uh, Burlstone it is. Uh, the whole Jacobean description, as you, and as you mentioned, um, we, we got a sense this is a place of, um, there's a lot of history to this place. And so we know it has dark secrets So ob- from the past. So obviously it's going to have secrets uh, in the present as well. Um, the, the, having the idea of having the moat and the drawbridge, I thought that was really cool. Um, it um, creates a bit of an, uh, an, an atmosphere. We're getting almost like a um, how of the Baskervilles feel. Wouldn't you agree? I would totally agree. We get that. Yeah, there's an atmosphere. There's a there's a fog or like a mist about it. Yeah, absolutely. It has a gloomy. Um, foreboding presence anyways that something nasty has happened or or there's much there's a lot of intrigue going on all around these environs and much Uh, like much like vermissa valley is and the the township is a external manifestation of a lot of these the these character flaws and the the ugliness and the the, you know the i guess the evil that's lurking uh within humans um i think that the the history and the conflict and the tragedy of Burlstone is meant in some way to comment on what happened to the Douglas family, you know? Yeah. I think one of the most vivid scenes, uh, we talked about McGinty, you know, where he first encounters uh, Blackjack McGinty in, in the saloon. I think we, I think that in itself gives you a description of the saloon itself. And we get a feeling about, you know, um, what Vermissa Valley is like um, in particular, this is the opening sequence of the Remissa Valley um, storyline. And I think these passages really capture the um, essence of what Arthur Conan Doyle is trying to portray here. It was the 4th of February in the year 1875. It had been a severe winter and the snow lay deep in the gorges of the Gilmerton Mountains. The steam plows had, however, kept the railroad road open, and the evening train which connects the long line of coal mining and iron-working settlements was slowly groaning its way up to the steep gradients which lead from Stagville on the plain to Vermissa, the central township which lies at the head of Vermissa Valley. From this point, the track sweeps downwards to Barton's Crossing, Helmdale, and the purely agricultural county of Merton. It was a single-track railroad, but at every siding, they, and they were numerous, long lines of trucks piled with coal and iron ore, told of the hidden wealth which had brought a rude population and a bustling life to this most desolate corner of the United States of America. For desolate it was, little could the first pioneer who had traversed it ever imagine that the fairest prairies and the most lush water pastures were valueless compared to this gloomy land of black crag and tangled forest. Above the dark and often scarcely penetrable woods upon their flanks, the high bare crowns of the mountains, white snow and jagged rock towered upon each flank, leaving a long, winding, tortuous valley in the center. Up this little train was slowly crawling. Let's get the visuals of the train crawling, you know, up the mountainside, you know, like an animal, like this animalistic kind of feel to it, you know. Uh, and and these people are just trapped inside, like these like these creatures that are crawling through or tearing its way through the wilderness. Uh, just very evocative, in my opinion. But you also get the the, the juxtaposition, you know, that I guess you get with all these sorts of of mining environments or places where there is. Just just around the corner, real beauty, you know, in the fertile plains, and and here you are nestled in this this ass cheek of of rot. But to go down there yeah. can make you rich, you know. You dig down, you live in the you live in the mines, you you set up yes. shop temporary as it is here in this this armpit of 
the valley and, yeah. and you'll get yourself something. You, you make your stake, you know, you get your, your, your little, your, your pocket of, uh, of earnings and then you, you get out of there again. And that's, and what, what you say about the train carrying all of these kind of, these little creatures, these desperate creatures looking to make a name for themselves or at least a fortune for themselves. It's basically the Easts, like Pennsylvania, historically, that area's answer to the Klondike, right? That, that, that's, yeah. kind of, that's kind of the environment well, we're getting. Or the Black Hills, for example, too, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. The, the same yeah. kind of feel. Yeah. To, it's to really it. nice. It's nice stuff. Yeah, like, and also here, too, like, I, I, just the visual is, I think, is great. Like, this thing here, it was not a, uh, having made one or two tentative remarks to the nearest miner and receiving only short, gruff replies, the traveler, i.e. McMurdo, resigned himself to an uncongenial silence, staring moodily out of the window of the fading landscape. It was not a cheering prospect through the growing gloom that there pulsed the red glow of the furnaces on the sides of the hills. Great heaps of slag and dumps of cinders loomed up on each side, with the high shafts of the collieries towering above them. Huddled groups of mean wooden houses, the windows which were beginning to outline themselves in light, were scattered here and there along the line, and the frequent halting places were crowded with their swarthy inhabitants. I mean, is this uh, California, mountains of California, or is this Mordor? <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. it's just the, the fantastic uh, taking the reality and making it fantastical and metaphorical and uh, allegorical, I guess you could say. Um, it's really brought to the hilt here by Arthur Conan Doyle. And this is some of his best writing, uh, I think, of all of his of all of his stories uh, in terms of description and character. Mm-hmm. It's great. Um, Gilmerton is actually a small town in Scotland. Uh so it's obviously used fictitiously here to yes. you know to represent the 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 coal fields or the coal mines of Pennsylvania and the the northeast. Yeah, I guess maybe so he, the, the Gilmertons are like a little offshoot of the Sierra Nevada, like I guess or the mountains of California, like I don't know what he's referring to here. No, this this isn't set in California. This is set in Pennsylvania out in the east. Oh, I, I thought it was set. I, 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 I honestly thought it was set in because it said Vermista Valley, California. That's why I thought it was in California. Doesn't say California. Oh, no. The he. The reason you're confused with that, it doesn't say. Um, California. Oh, it was because he made his. Yeah, he made his fortune out in California. Yeah, he yeah, le- he left that. here. He left here and met up with uh, Cecil Barker in California. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, so we're talking Pennsylvania. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where where the gun was made too, right? So that connects it to that yeah. area, the coal mines. Yeah, right. basically out 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 in the hollers of of you know Kentucky or Pennsylvania, that whole area. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's a minor. That's a minor minor d- 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 detail. Miss, I'm sure it doesn't really have any import on on interpretation of the story in in in, in, in any in, 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 in any fashion. Um, Very so little. A bit, yeah, a bit of a slip there, a bit of a slip. But mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I, I I think I've made my point clear about the environs as you have. So I, I think not 100% of five, but 4.5 I think is very, very fair. Oh, it's it's much better than we've given in a while for environment. I mean, I'm I'm just scrolling through the short stories that we've, we've read recently in The Return. Uh, last time we gave a 4.5 for environs, either one of us was... Uh, me, in fact, uh, but we got to go back eight stories to the adventure of Black Peter. Oh yeah! And then the last time you gave a four point five for environments was well, you gave a five for Baskerville. Oh yeah, well that's and the adventure of the Greek interpreter you really liked there too. Yeah, but that's going back a while, so this is really really welcome. The touches of descriptive writing here. 
Yeah, and I and I think I think it's a perfect segue to get into another high mark I gave this particular story, which is uh, the supporting cast. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'll let you talk about that first. I don't I don't really have uh, a whole heck of a lot to say here, and that's deliberate because I was hoping to. I mean, looking at the supporting cast we've got, obviously Inspector McDonald, White Mason, uh, the Burlstone police officer, Porlock himself, and we'll talk about him in a minute, uh, John Douglas, Ivy Douglas, Cecil Barker, Butler, whose name is Ames, and the maid whose name is Mrs. Allen at Burlstone. Then you've got Jack McMurdo, Mike Scanlon, Jacob Shafter, Eddie Shafter, McGinty, he's a boss, I know he's a perpetrator, Ted Baldwin, the same thing, Brother Morris, James Stranger, who's the Herald Editor, is a neat little touch, Evan Potts, yeah. who's the con- the county delegate, who's kind of, he's kind of like the uh, the capo of the entire area, kind of in a way. Yeah. Uh, then you've got Lawler and Andrews, who you know were sent over to, to do a job, Chester Wilcox, Bertie Edwards. Uh, Captain although- Marvin. Yeah, that's right, Captain Marvin. Uh, the two Willoughbys, Tiger Cormac, who you mentioned before, Haraway, the Lodge Secretary, and the Treasurer. We've got a shit ton of characters. And yeah, okay, some of them are just wallpaper. Some of them all are like wallpaper. I, I accept that. But yes. that, I think, doesn't necessarily mean that they're not fun to read and they're not no. fun to follow. Because you can see, you can see young men who have left their own failures behind perhaps in their own towns and cities to come here you can see them being off the hook and getting almost like the hyenas in the lion king really excited about going on a job to kill you know or to 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 beat or to maim or to thieve on the and in the name of mcginty you can see them kind of being that type of uh riled up figure you know and i I believe that i've seen that sort of anti-social behavior in in kids that i teach like you know (laughs) and kids that we grew up with we've seen that you know and and so I can see it amplified here in this boomtown environment. So I, I like that, even if they're not major players. But there's enough of a supporting cast here to really turn your head and to really get get you interested. But I still think that this is a difficult one to rank, more so than Study in Scarlet or The Sign of Four, where both of those narratives had a much greater sense of commitment to a proper resolution, you know? Yes. And, and in the current day of Holmes's London, to score the supporting players of the first section and the Burlstone investigation, I'm feeling like I'm about a four. Yes. The Vermissa Valley story though, is more like a five. Yeah, I know. So, so you together, you, in the middle you got, you yeah. got to call, I, I had to call it in the middle altogether. The characters in both sections, despite, despite their lack of full development, even if some of them are just caricatures, you know, I felt them really engaging and I was really, really interested in them. And if you think about it, for the novels that we've read, and I, I, I'm I'm asking you to think about it, to either support me or maybe to challenge me, I can't think of a character like Brother Morris anywhere else in the canon that we've met that has been really interested in his in his duality and in his sense of entrapment and in his in his appeal to McMurdo as a young powerful guy that he's almost like a like a like a parish priest. He's trying to steer him away. From like, I find him a really compelling figure in this story. Yes, yes, a, a person uh, in uh, amidst villainy, but who is not really part of it. Uh, it's like a very gray character, and uh, you do not see that a lot in these stories at all. No, you really don't, and I, I really appreciated that. I found it refreshing. I found it human again, and I thought that in a story where we don't get to see Holmes's moral compass activated too often, because Holmes isn't in this part of the section. 
I I thought it was good that we still had the writer showing his own, you know? And so I, I went 4.5 for the supporting or secondary cast because I thought, I thought it was really outstanding. So 4.5. Yeah, that's what I gave it exactly. I wanted to give it a 5. I really, really did. But uh, the Moriarty, Porlock, uh, and we've got some thinly sketched characters, as you said, through the Vermissa Valley sequence, as good as all those characters and caricatures were. But it just wasn't enough to give it the full five, um, in my opinion. And I think, too, is because of the weaknesses of the narrative, I think, also affect the, the supporting cast. So there's some kind of kind of shit rolls downhill kind of thing mm -hmm. that way, too, mm -hmm. right? And, mm -hmm. and I think that affected the supporting cast a little, a little bit, too. So I think 4.5 is more than generous. And uh, actually, no, I think 4.5 is not more than generous. I think 4.5 is honestly the best mark you could give it. Uh-huh. And if you gave it less, I think it would be a disservice. And if you gave it more than 4.5, then I, I think you you might be overrating it. Well, that gives it... Uh, that brings an end, rather, to our scoring portion. And totaling this up, it gives you, BFG, a 21.5 score, uh, which is pretty high. This is your second highest scored book. But as we've seen in our James Bond retrospective or an our Ian Fleming series, that doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of where it's going to sit in a ranking of stories or novels. Uh, I gave it a 20 overall. So mm. both, I was surprised that this was a 20 because I didn't feel like, you know. Sometimes the scoring can kind of like, feel, yeah. yeah. But that's yeah. what I love about the index as well. Like it is confusing. It's as confusing as it is clear. And I think that makes it accurate. As stupid as that sounds. Like <laughs> I, I, I think we're, we're using it consistently and we're using it in such a way as to, you know, have these, have these little moments. Like just like we did in our, in our bond series, we don't have the aesthetic mark. You know what I mean? We don't have the feel mark and that's cool because it's going to inform how we rank these afterwards. But in terms of the novels, right? We've, Oh, actually, no, let's not rank these novels yet. I've got one more thing I want to share with you. Um, and it kind of is connected to the secondary characters as well. I promised you a little discussion from my notes uh, and from what I could glean from um, uh, about Klinger's annotations about who Fred Porlock was. There's oh. quite a range of theories and suppositions concerning the identity of this informant or Moriarty's leak, if you will. Um, there's uh, what I'm what I'm going to do is read you a summary of six or seven of the most uh, debated, I guess, beliefs, if that's the right thing, um, positions. And then if you'd like me to expand on one or two of them, I will. So as I'm going through the list, think about one or two of them that you'd like me to say a little bit more on, and I'll dig into them, okay? P proceed. So uh, a first theory, which is promoted by uh, Ronald A. Knox in an essay entitled The Mystery of Mycroft, is that Porlock is Mycroft Holmes. I was thinking that in my mind. Was okay. That possible? But okay. Mycroft is very uh, rotund, though I don't see how he could... Anyway. Anyway, <laughs> another idea, um, positioned by David Talbot Cox in an essay, Poor Sherlock, is that Fred Porlock is Moriarty himself. Ah, messing with Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. A third theory, written and promoted by Thomas Andrew in his Porlock Puzzle, an abbreviated solution, is that Porlock 
is Mrs. Hudson. <laughs> a fourth and a fifth, so double supported, belief, one by Russell McDermott in Porlock, the Professor and Colonel James, and another by Christopher Baum in The Problem of Porlock. Both of them believe that Porlock is Colonel James Moriarty, who was a brother. Oh, yeah. I heard a mention of this James Moriarty uh-huh. before. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, there's there's another Moriarty, too, the station master in the west of England, who Paul Zenz believes is Porlock, and he makes that argument in A Case of Identity. P.H. Uh, <clears throat> Wood, in Excellent Watson, an almanac, argues for Porlock's identity being that of Ivy Douglas's younger brother. And this is where I think sometimes this stuff gets out of whack, right? It's like, yes. let's just create these characters that we don't even know anything about and make it all up. It's like we're <laughs> fan fiction. Like, because that's exactly what the author was thinking, right? <laughs> yeah. And fi- the final one I'll offer you um, and is Alan Oldings, The Spy Who Stayed in the Warm. He argues in that essay that Porlock is none other than Adolf Verloc, who's Joseph Conrad's character, the secret agent. Okay. So, do you want me to expand on one or any of those? Uh, Mrs. Hudson for is is the first one I want you to expand okay. on. Okay. Cool. And and the other one would be I got to find it. Yeah, I, I'm really curious to see. Um, there's one that was actually surprised that wasn't there. Hmm. And but and I'm but uh, but uh, now that I realize what I, I, I thought that wasn't I guess it doesn't make sense because he hates homes. I was going to say Kirk Colonel Moran, but uh, it wouldn't uh-huh. make sense because. He wouldn't have been trying to undermine Moriarty. Uh, no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Plus, Hudson, plus, do you well, think? Do you think that? Do you think that he would have been afraid as well? I don't. I don't buy that he would have been afraid. No, not the big game hunter. Definitely no. not. Uh, okay, I'm looking for this Mrs. Hudson one here now, because uh, I've got it written here, but I just need to find yeah. it. So I'm looking for Thomas Andrew the Porlock puzzle. Here we go. Uh, okay, so <clears throat> Thomas Andrew in the Porlock Puzzle and Abbreviated Solution proposes that Mrs. Hudson was the agent, while Russell McDermott in Porlock the Professor and Colonel James suggested Colonel James Moriarty. Oh, sorry, there's nothing more to it than that. I can't expand on that one. That's one of the few I can't expand on. It's just a belief held by that guy. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I'm sure something's like crazy. Sorry, that like, was, yeah, that was a letdown. Modern, modern Sherlock, yeah, it was. Yeah, I'm disappointed. Um, I was going to say, like, who else could they possibly a Porlock be? You know, like, I don't know, that, like, Molly girl from, like, the BBC series? Like, I have no idea. I'm curious what they say about Mycroft being um, okay. Porlock. He's a spy. Okay. Uh, Ronald Knox considers at length uh, the position of Holmes's enigmatic brother, Mycroft Holmes, who figures prominently, blah, 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 blah. Mycroft, Knox argues, was a man of nefarious associations who often collaborated with Professor Moriarty and therefore was able to pass along inside information to Holmes. It's easy to understand, Knox reasons, and here I quote, that some of Holmes's most interesting cases came to him through Mycroft and that Mycroft was able to supply his brother, perplexed over a difficult problem, with an explanation that afterwards proved to be the correct one. Although the thing cannot be proved, I'm strongly of the opinion that Mycroft was in fact the Fred Porlock who acted as his brother's informer in the Valley of Fear. Sherlock, Porlock. There's a subconscious reminiscence in the choice of an alias which suggests a family connection. And who more than Mycroft, with his tidy and orderly brain, his great capacity for storing facts to use Whittaker's almanac as the basis of a cipher message? 
hmm, good progress because some, 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 some good arguments. Well, at least there's an argument there. You know, it's not purely uh, let me write my fan fiction and connect it somehow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I guess the other one would be... Um, well, why don't I talk to you about uh, the, just just to build something on this idea? How about Mrs. Douglas's brother? How about that? Okay, okay, okay. That's where I was going anyway. Ivy <laughs> Douglas's younger brother. All right, let me find that one. Why is younger brother though? I I, well, know. this this is it. Uh, I'm going to figure it out for you. Here we go. Uh, da, 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 da. Wood makes a detailed response to Webster's argument, agreeing with his first clue but rejecting the rest. Wood deduces that Porlock apparently has a strong motive pr- to prevent the Burlstone murder, risking death. He cannot mm. leave Moriarty's employ because of some hold over him and has not long been with the gang. Otherwise, there would have been more occasions of attempts to hinder Moriarty. He also has a good education. He must have come in contact with Moriarty and must hold a fairly senior position with the gang. Wood concludes that Porlock is a university man with a mathematical background, was tutored or employed by Moriarty when Moriarty was a coach, and was induced into accepting a senior administrative post. His responsibilities would have been communication and security. He speculates that Porlock was the younger brother of Ivy Douglas. So that's given motivation to prevent the Burlstone murder from happening. Yeah. Oh, that's, I guess that I could, he would, cause if she's married, the younger brother, I would just say brother, I think would, it would, it would, it would make that, that would give that theory more credibility. Well, I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, I'm, but if, but if university, I guess she's, she was in her thir- described being in her thirties and a bit, slightly older. So I guess regardless, he would be her younger brother. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, one more point, I guess, not about this. Um, let's see. I'm going to pick one more from my list of notes here that I've missed. There's a couple of good annotations in this. Um, Here we go. Here we go. Why don't I say a thing or two about the inspiration for this uh, ancient order of the freemen? The the scourers? The scourers, yeah. Why why don't I say a thing or two about that? Or the (laughs) stonecutters? Yeah, the stonecutters, yeah. Most scholars associate the fictional ancient order of freemen with the ancient order of Hibernians, AOH is its acronym, which is a fraternal organization of Irish Catholics dating back to 1641. The U.S. chapter was founded in New York in 1836. Most, if not all, members of the Molly Maguires were first members of this AOH which proved a welcome and needed refuge for Irish and Irish-Americans at a time when bigotry against them was rampant. To some outsiders, the Mollies, the AOH, and the Working Men's Benevolent Association appeared to be one and the same. But whereas John Siney, the head of the WBA, favored arbitration and pledged to oppose violence, the leaders of the AOH pushed the WBA to strike rather than compromise with the mine owners and accept a wage that would have broken the union's contract. With its bold positions and outspoken leaders, the AOH and the secret society that it allegedly fostered earned the fierce loyalty of its followers and raised the alarm of Franklin Gowan, president of the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad, and owner of several miner, and owner of several mines, who grew determined to suppress this threat to his authority. Kind of a, uh, it's a good shot in the dark I made then calling uh, McMurdo a Fenian in my outline. Yeah, that's that's quite a derogatory term. Well, it's it also refers to a, a brotherhood of it's like Irish brotherhood, basically. Like, uh, if you if you if you recall, um, Darcy McGee was 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 killed by a Fenian. I do recall that, but um, it's a it's certainly a term you don't want to use over here loosely. No, I guess no, definitely not. No, but uh, anyway, so there we have it: the Valley of Fear, with a few extra contextual notes at the end. Overall, like I was saying, I don't know where this is going to sit. And uh, 
but but let's try. We've got the four novels done. This is yes. not us doing our official ranking, but let's just do our off-the-cuff ranking. And uh, what, what do you think, buddy? Where, where, where are you going to put this one? And how do you see the other ones fitting in? My ranking? Yeah. I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you my ranking of the four novels. Okay. Number four. The Sign of Four. Number three. The Valley of Fear. Number two, A Study in Scarlet. Number one, The Hound of the Baskervilles. I think that I agree with you on most of these points. Um, interesting that The Sign of Four is your least favorite of the novels because that is traditionally regarded as one of the more popular ones. I'm going to go a little different to you. Um, okay. I think that this story here edges out A Study in Scarlet hmm. on a merit of its backstory. Um, I don't think it's as good London. I love the London that we get, but I think the backstory here is better. Okay. I think that The Hound of the Baskervilles is the best novel. I just think it's the most engaging i think it's the best to read you know i think it's yes. the best holmes a holmes fan can get a lot from it a regular reader can get a lot from it it's a book that i would not hesitate to pick up and teach yeah. um it's a book that offers a lot i think broadly in connection to other genre and um to the study of literature itself out with the canon i think this is a real great standalone novel yeah it's, it's doyle's magnum opus yeah, yeah, it really is. That's a, that's a good way of looking at it. Um, I have real sympathy for parts of The Sign of Four, uh, but I find it, in terms of its imperial backstory, a little uh. bit too convoluted, a little bit too, a little bit too ambitious. And yes. I know, and I know that that is a Victorian writer. You know, that is a Victorian story. It's an empire adventure, and I and I appreciate it for that. But it doesn't mean that I enjoy reading it anymore. So. I struggled through it in points. Uh, and yeah, I, w I would not put that up at the top. I think that comes in third for me. I, I would go like this. I would go um, Hound of the Baskervilles, followed probably by Study in Scarlet. Oh, gosh. You know what? Sign of the Four. It's almost like there's a tie. It's like a tie yeah. between Study in Scarlet and Valley of Fear, in my opinion. Hmm. It's, it's almost a tie. Go, what are your four again? Go for it. One, two, three, four. Hit me. Uh, Hound of the Baskervilles. Yep. Uh, Study in Scarlet, uh, Valley of Fear, and The Sign of Four. Mm -hmm. I think I'm switching The Valley of Fear and The Sign of Four. I think The Valley of Fear, although it did get a 20, I think that is still my least favorite of these. Although the stuff in the center was, was great, I'm switching them. So it was three for you. It's four for me. Okay, so you would say then the sign of four is a stronger narrative than a value of fear, and value of fear suffers because of uh, 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 of a uh, of a weaker narrative. Well, no, what I think is that it's a stronger Holmes story than the value of fear, and oh, I want yes. you know yes. overall, I think the simplicity of the design makes this story more compact and easier to be thematic than the grander, the imperial adventure of the sign of the four. At least to me, my major issues with this story, <clears throat> pardon me, rest in how the component parts link or don't link, and the sense of structural letdown, like I was saying, that we get from a really poor denouement 
Um, not necessarily a denouement in the backstory in Vermissa Valley, but the, the denouement of the, the novel itself is poor because our epilogue sucks. And it features really excellent writing, great character composition, but yeah, I, I, I just, I'm really bothered by the imbalance of the narrative. Like it really took me, it pissed me off. I, I felt I felt unappetized when I finished. Like I just, I'd read that huge section and I got the connection and then it just wraps up so quickly and so lazily. And we'd seen it wrap up like that before. You know, we had the, yes. the five the five orange pips basically gave me the exact same ending. Yeah, With a sunken exactly. ship or a murder on a boat or something. You know, it's like, <laughs> been here before, man. Like, this is your fucking last novel. Don't end yeah. it like this. But he did, yeah. so. Exactly. I don't think, uh, I think he was really in the headspace in parts of writing this, but... Yeah, he must have been needing to take a shit or something when he was writing the epilogue to this. <laughs> he, 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 was, uh, he was right at the deadline and he just couldn't make it in time, I guess. And uh, just, just, give, just give a little missive at the end. Anyway, look, buddy, that that's it. We are ready to move on to the next short story collection. Yeah, The Last Bow. Exciting times. Yeah, that's uh, pretty crazy. We're staring uh, how many down, stories, the, we're staring how down the stories are in The Last Bow. Oh, I can tell you right now. I've got it here. Uh, what have I got? Oh no, I have the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, and in the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, there are 12, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I think there's 12 in the last bow, too. I'm going to say 12, and uh, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I, I, I think we got 24 stories left to do. Yeah, I, 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 I think so. So we'll be carrying this out into the next uh, couple of months for sure, but uh, we're on. Rome stretch now, so it'll be really interesting to see. Are we going to see an upswing in quality again after I hope so. you know the, the some really weak stories in return of, in the return of Sherlock Holmes, or are we are we going to continue going too much, showing a more much more disinterested uh, Arthur Conan Doyle in this way? I mean, by this point now, I think he's like writing the Lost World and stuff like that. Well, I, I'm not actually sure. I'm I'm kind of I'm trying to move through his biography, the Lycett biography the um, kind of on par with the stories and the publication of them so i am skipping over sections of it and I, I couldn't tell you exactly when the lost world is but yeah it's probably around now yeah anyway. and into world war one time period no but look so well, I, I, that's sorry. a wrap on valley of fear it is a wrap and instead of offering you a choice you'll notice this week i, I have more uh, assigned pieces of music i thought yeah more that, assertive um, It'd been a while. It'd been a while since since we um, we we took away some of the humor in our songs, and we just got back to thematics. And I liked the last Valley Cue by John Barry. I thought that was good. Great. Um, I did have a Harry Belafonte track called "Dark as a Dungeon." Now, I mean that that's a, a Merle Travis song originally. I think it's Merle Travis song originally. Uh, all about a miner's life and how you know you sell your you, you sell your existence kind of to try to stake a bit of claim. But I think we kind of played on that with the sixteen tons of Tennessee Ernie Ford at the beginning. So I'm going to finish mm -hmm. with a really unique piece that I like and I think captures the um, the quiet suffering of of a lot of these figures from the Vermissa Valley. And also, it I think it kind of reaches in a criminal tone uh, and, a, and a kind of a sad tone to what's going on with Moriarty's network, if indeed we're meant to believe that. This is uh, a movement from a string quartet by Antonin Dvorak, and it is his American string quartet, um, oh. named for you know his experience of America. And uh, Dvorak, of course, wrote the New World Symphony, which is a very powerful and a very um, well-regarded symphony. And this, the American String Quartet, has a has a different feel to it, but it's still 
plays on ideas, I think, of expansion and hopes and dreams. And like you said quite nicely earlier in this episode, the idea of what happens when your dream fails or it becomes corrupted. And I think we got all kinds of these feelings here in the movement. So I really hope yes. you enjoy it. I hope our listeners enjoy it. And I hope uh, to see you back here soon, pal, for the next episode where we'll start talking about the first four stories in His Last Bow. All right. Uh, play it again, Sam. Or play it once, Sam. Or play it once, yeah. <laughs> Thank you.